Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. I am recording for Contrarian's Corner. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host, Julio. Julio, how are you doing on this? Uh, it's Thursday, right? Yes. I had to think about it for okay. a moment. I-, I know when the weekends are, but that's about it. Every other day seems to blend together these days. Um, so, Thursday evening in Austin, Texas. Julio, how are you holding up? Uh I was blown away when I found out that this is actually a true story. Did you know that? I don't know if, if that came up on your... Uh, it's inspired by... Are, are you not... Well, I mean, I'd always you, heard about the Salem trials. Are you not familiar? Okay, the Salem witch trials. Right, right. But I always thought of that... Have you never watched The Lords of Salem? <laughs> yes. I mean, we've talked about The Lords of Salem. <laughs> that was all based on a true story, too. Yes. Okay, so not to talk over you there. So what was your knowledge of this? I always thought it was an allegory for the communist witch hunt from the 50s. So I always thought Ah. that it was just uh, Arthur Miller being clever. And, you know, he he couldn't write about McCarthy. So he wrote about Paul Scofield and uh, (laughs) Jeffrey Jones. You know what I mean? Like, I thought, I mean, I knew that Salem was a real place, and I knew that that witches, you know, they believed in witches, but I didn't think that there was actually the idea that this sort of shit would happen more than once <laughs> in the history of a country. It just blows my mind. <laughs> you know, I know it was uh, it was a long time in between instances, but I don't know. It was crazy. I, I really thought that Arthur Miller was just kind of taking you know extreme liberties with that with with the town of salem and no come to find out it was actually i mean the the basics are all there uh yeah the salem witch trial it's um i likely have a knowledge of it from childhood because the simpsons did an episode that one of their halloween episodes was loosely based on it but um i could see that like uh crocodile tears isn't really a crocodile crying. So I, I understand sometimes you hear things and uh, maybe not understand the backstory to them. But yeah, this was, um, the, ah, God, I don't even remember if I would have learned about this in school, the Salem Witch Trials, that is. Not not the Crucible. I didn't learn about the Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> Winona Ryder movie in school. But um, How about the play? Uh Maybe, maybe that's why I'm so familiar with this specific iteration of the story. Um but this, you know, and like the laughing in like science class of like, you know, the people that were burned at the stake for saying that the earth revolved around the sun or the earth was round and stuff like that. And that, that definitely falls into this category of people that 
refute scientific evidence in front of them despite people dying in thousands oh i'm sorry i'm talking that's covid19 uh this <laughs> what what we did one recently that we said applied so much oh it was just our edward, last episode edward scissorhands yes, i my my thought as i was watching this this anxiety inducing movie in current in our current situation was that maybe it was not the best idea psychologically to schedule edward scissorhands and the crucible back to back because <laughs> the mob mentality in both movies is just uh i don't know it, it drives you insane it's so weird on paper which it was when this was presented <laughs> there's no way that i thought man Watching Edward Scissorhands and the Crucible back to back are going to be this just like moral, uh, mental beatdown just <laughs> because of everything that's going on in the world currently. Um, so that's a, a really long opening, uh, very long introduction to the Contrarians. Um, again, my name is Alex, joined by Julio. If this is your first time listening, we don't always take as long to get to the, the jib, the cut of our jib, uh, as we do. And, for our podcast, what we do, our little gimmick here is we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, find a movie that's highly rated on Rotten Tomatoes, also known as Certified Fresh, make a case for maybe why it shouldn't be. Opposite side of that coin, we find a nasty green splotch, those rotten movies, typically 30% and below, and try to find the positive merit in them. Um, we alternate episodes, positive or Certified Fresh and rotten. We're currently ensconced in the summer of Winona. Just going through the highs and lows of Miss Winona Ryder's filmography, uh, Julio. This one's going to be a little different as we join, uh, as we visit. Excuse me, the 1996 uh, box office bomb of The Crucible. Yes, starring, of course, Miss Winona Ryder and Sir Daniel Day Lewis. Now, this movie, I believe, is at 68 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So, how are we going to go about this, sir? I just realized that we didn't agree on <laughs> a position, but I, I mean, I went. Rotten, right? I, it's considered fresh and rotten tomatoes. So I figure okay. we treat it as rotten here. And then when we get to I have talk, both positive and negative. I was about to say, I have both positive and negative things to say about it. So while for the first portion of this podcast, Contrarian's Corner, we're going to uh, argue against every fighting bit of that 68%. If you want to know how we really feel about this movie, hang around for the second portion uh, titled Real Talk. Now, Julio, for... Winona Virus 2020, hashtag ride or die. As you put together this lineup, was this specifically saved towards the end or were you just kind of plugging holes where they needed to be? Or was this one you kind of wanted to save, you know, before we got to dessert? This is kind of pre-main course. This is like the beginning of the main course. Like we're cutting our steak. Right, right yeah. We've, we're done with the bread. No more bread because we need to save space for, for the dessert, uh, you know, for Stranger Things. Uh, so... If you guys have been paying attention, every every month we've had a positive and negative, and then a bonus episode that is kind of a a low positive. In this case, is the Crucible. You know, we had Alien Resurrection, and we had Dracula the last couple of months, and uh, easily we could have gone with uh, you know position wise, we could have like swapped any of those. We could have done Crucible in the first month, but I kind of feel like it's it's good that we needed to go from. Uh, Winona and Dracula with her corsets and and just like all the sexiness to another kind of uh, period piece Winona here and with her uh, what would you call what she's wearing her Puritan clothing it's uh, very uh, Amish at least what I've le- learned to believe or understand is the Amish uh, wardrobe uh, she's got uh, it's very maid like she's got her bonnet and her 
apron and whatnot. It's not sexy. That's yeah, I think point. it was. A- <laughs> It is not. Uh, I think it was important to save this towards the end so we could go through all the things to see what Winona can do to learn what she definitively cannot do. Oh, God. And that is... (laughs) And whatever this movie is. She she cannot communicate with the devil? Is that what you're saying? She was not made for Broadway, (laughs) I think is what I would say based on this movie. We, We shall battle it out on Real Talk, but I... I know that in because you know I'd only seen this movie once back when it opened, and to me, it was always one of those where uh, it had a lot of Oscar buzz before it opened, and then it completely disappeared afterwards. I think that uh, maybe Joan Allen got a nomination. Uh, I was about to say it did get two nominations in the end. Oh, uh, did DDL get one too? He did not, but it did get the nomination for best adapted screenplay. Okay, which is weird because we come to think of. Daniel Day-Lewis now that basically anytime he just fucking goes to the grocery store, he gets an Oscar <laughs> nomination for it. Every time he puts a mask on before going to the to the grocery store, <laughs> yeah. he gets nominated. He puts his, it's like the, it's like a cheetah print mask and he puts it on and just walks into Nando's <laughs> to get some chicken. <laughs> so at this point in my life, 1996, November 27th of 1996, when this movie was released, I definitely would have known who Winona Ryder was, but... I would have been nine, and I would have had no clue who Daniel Day-Lewis was, aside from, you know, I've spoken on this podcast many, many times about the completely fuzzy and chocolate-covered memories I have of going to the video store, and especially back in those days, the VHS covers, the more colorful, when the job was, or the, the point was to make them stick out to you. Uh, a lot of times they were just the movie posters, but then when they would send them to uh, video stores with the intention of catching John and Jane Q public, they would kind of spice them up a little bit. I say all that to say my first ever exposure to Daniel Day-Lewis was um, my parents never bought movies, really. Like the majority of VHSs in our collection were movies for my sister and I, just Disney movies, comedies, wrestling, if you can believe it. <laughs> and um, But I do remember they would always rent movies when there was big buzz about them because having kids, you can't really go to you know the big movies. I just remember staring at the the box art, the cover of uh, Last of the Mohicans oh, for just yeah. so long, with him and his like long flowing hair in it. Like it looked like to me a, a young kid knowing zero about the movie. It looked to me like an adult version of a Disney movie. I don't mean like a porn way, but like uh, <laughs> just like what the natural progression of a Disney prince and in, translated into real life looks like. Cause you know, it's like sepia tone yep. and his like muscles are poking out and his hair is long and flowing. So that was my first exposure to Daniel Day Lewis. But I say that to say I would have been familiar with him, but this is certainly not the type of movie I would have uh, gone out to the theater to see at the time. I, I'm trying to remember the, it was probably the boxer I think was maybe the first movie of his I ever really watched or my left foot in high school or college. Gangs of New York. I still have never seen gangs of New York. Oh, I've, I've gotten relentless shit from my dad about that. But, (laughs) and then of course in 2007, he would star in there will be blood and quite literally change my life forever with that movie. So he's come a long way from his stringy, nasty fucking Keanu Reeves and Bill and Ted wig that he's wearing in this movie <laughs> to where he is now. The Phantom Thread's the last thing he made, right? Yeah, I think that's that's it. I think he's retired. Oh, really? That was what they were saying. But, you know, I mean, Kevin Smith retired once. If Kevin Smith can't stay away, I doubt DDO can. Do, do not ever compare <laughs> Kevin Smith and Daniel Day-Lewis in my presence, sir. So, The Crucible... 
is again based in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. Uh, this, uh, not off right off the bat, but this is in the middle, the midst, uh, or the beginning of the Salem witch trials. Um, we Before we can get to the trial, we got to commit the crime first, and the movie starts off with a uh, gaggle of women and girls alike. There are some young women, some little girls, and some uh, full-grown women in the middle of the forest somewhere. Um, just dancing and I guess <laughs> conjuring up spirits. It's yeah. I think I've made this point before at least a couple of times, but it's always worth pointing out. Um, uh, we get uh, a black woman. She's the one leading them into this. And I'm already kind of, uh, much like with Jeffrey Jones, the novelty has worn off. It used like for a, a couple of times during this summer, I was like, Hey, they finally got like a black person on a winner writer movie. Cause it's her filmography has been pretty, pretty white, but here, I was cautious and I had right to be because this, this poor black woman goes through hell within the first 20 minutes of the movie. So uh, the representation was there, but it was uh, mean spirited. Yeah. It's uh, uncomfortable. I think would be the (laughs) mildest way to put it, but they are, I think they start a fire. They're chanting, they're casting aspersions and they're, I guess what they believe are spells uh, on the local townspeople, Winona Ryder wishes death upon um, Goody Proctor, who we come to find out is Miss Joan Allen, who plays the wife of Daniel Day-Lewis, John Proctor. We find out shortly into the movie why she wishes death upon the specific person. How long did it take you to figure out that uh, that they that Goody is all time speak for Mrs. Uh, it took me a while. I thought Goody was just like Joan Allen's like nickname. Yeah, but then they're like they're just calling like, like Screech. Yeah, they're calling everybody Goody. Yeah, I eventually caught on to it. It's I never I, I haven't even researched it yet, so I'd be fascinated to see if that's supposed to be like a not not necessarily derogatory, but kind of like a a, a status or a, a to like keep you in line type thing. You're just a Goody. A Goody is not as good as a ma'am. Yes, there you go. <laughs> There's. There's Goody, there's Dame, and then there's Ma'am. <laughs> but yeah, and then like the most metal part of this entire movie, Winona Ryder just like thrashes a chicken into a rock and then drinks its blood and wipes it on her face. It's one of the more metal things I've ever seen Winona Ryder do. She learned from Gary Oldman. Yes, she did. Uh, all the while, uh, Senator Kelly, Bruce Davidson himself, is just kind of watching this aghast from afar. Uh, he plays the character of Reverend Samuel Paris, and I think... At first, he's just kind of taken aback at the sight of a naked woman because as they're like (laughs) slam dancing, one of the women just strips down stark naked and he doesn't know what to make of it. But to be fair, I thought this was kind of a a dream sequence. It wasn't well presented because like the lens is foggy and it it's not in tone visually with the rest of the movie. So for a while, I thought this was supposed to be a dream sequence. Yeah, when when one of the women takes her clothes off. Because it happens, it's like a long shot, so you don't really know who took her clothes off. And it's like, holy shit, did Winona Ryder just take her clothes off this early into the movie and this late in the summer of Winona? Because so far, we haven't had any any like really risque Winona shots. At first, that's what I thought too, but the woman who took her clothes off was a, a woman. She was a sturdy <laughs> gal, and Winona Ryder is very frail and thin. I was interested with who it was, but I, I could tell it wasn't Winona. <laughs> well, I think that I think that's what Bruce Davidson was doing. He was trying to figure out who was naked before he decided if he was outraged or aroused. Is that there you go? Winona's related to him. I think it's uh, his niece, right? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell relationships with women in this movie just because they're all goodies. <laughs> 
They're all goodies, and men have no problem hitting any of them. It's just, it's my Uber driver. Smack. Get back here. Uh, so cut to the next day, and the little girls that were present for this are comatose, allegedly. They're in their beds and unable to wake, and people figure, you know, the devil's up to no good. This is quickly where it becomes, like, Trump supporter country, <laughs> where the most plausible answer cannot be it. It's all a conspiracy created by uh, the devil, which, you know, D, Democrat, <laughs> Democratic Party. It all connects. The, where the root of all evil is. Yeah, it's like the back of the dollar bill with the um, <laughs> the pyramid or the, the uh, Illuminati. So, so the two little girls are comatose. This is never explained, though. They're faking it. Right, but but why? I don't know. The movie does a terrible job of that, and like you expect it to like result in some like Reagan shit, where uh, not the president, the girl from The Exorcist, where like they monkey crawl out of bed or a crab walk, excuse me, and their heads turn around and shit. But then they just eventually wake up like I don't want to, and like I miss my mom, and it's and they don't explain why they're doing it. I guess like when Nona's badgering the one while she's asleep like shaking her violently like wake up you little bitch but even then i think she like says something like the girls are afraid they're gonna get caught that they were hanging out with these women in the woods i think so their solution they're just worried they're not gonna be goodies they're gonna be (laughs) baddies cast out as (laughs) as harlots yeah baddies uh but their solution then is to just pretend that they're that they're in a coma which is it doesn't really it draws more attention to them i know they're kids and they're stupid but the entire movie it was nagging at me that all this came about so uh, randomly. You know, it, it was not part of a. Nobody had a well thought out plan. It's a horrible plan. That's <laughs> what you do when you don't want to help mow the lawn. You act like you're asleep. Oh. And just, you <laughs> they know. just didn't want to go to school. So uh, unfortunately, they took it too far. <laughs> That's what you're telling. The one of the deleted scenes is like the girl has the thermometer in her mouth and she's running laps in her room to try to get her temperature up before <laughs> Winona Ryder comes back in to check it. But this creates a hubbub throughout the the township, the province of Salem. We are, unfortunately, Jeffrey Jones greets us again here on uh, the Summer Winona as he plays Thomas uh, Putnam, which he just kind of seems like a local idiot. He definitely seems like if there was a bar in Salem, he would be spending most of his time there. And his hair. Yeah. What the fuck? There, there, there are some people that can carry a wig and do period pieces, and there are some that shouldn't even try. This movie definitely it makes a case that Jeffrey Jones shouldn't have come near uh, the 1800s ever. This movie and, is like a, it's like one of those fucking veggie trays that you get at uh, Whole Foods, like the ones you get at like Walmart and Target. Those are made for bread and butter Americans, but these ones you get at like Whole Foods or Sprouts <laughs> that have like really weird like raspberries, like in between the carrots and the celery. Like, that's this movie. It's like this huge platter of all these things that you're like, yeah, I understand why this works here. It's like Daniel Day-Lewis. It's like, yeah, this works really well in this particular setting. Or, um, fuck, who plays Hale? That guy's perfect. Uh, (laughs) And then you get to Jeffrey Jones, and it's like, you know, an olive with a piece of pineapple in the middle that you bite into. And you're like, what the fuck is this doing here? This makes no sense. And that's him the entire movie. I mean, for better or for worse, Jeffrey Jones is who he is. For the worst. <laughs> but in this movie, every time he was one of the people that every time he came on screen, I was just like, fuck, 
Now I'm this. It the illusion's gone. It makes as much sense as me or Julio being in a movie based in the 1600s. Yeah, I mean, you can put a wig on us. Like all that was missing. Yeah, all that was missing was a shot of like Jeffrey Jones fit, like uh, checking his digital watch. <laughs> like, what time is it? Um, Bruce Davidson confronts Winona Ryder. Um, we haven't even talked about her character's name, Abigail Williams. Called Abby in certain parts of the movie. She is Goody Abby. a bad person. No, she, that's Batty Abby. <laughs> she is a bad, bad person. Amongst the worst people we've dealt with here on The Contrarians, <laughs> I would venture to say. And he, I, some of the lines in this movie I just wrote down because they were so very much of the stage and not the screen per se. He, like, yell asks her, were you conjuring spirits in the forest? And then she says something, you know, and really bad delivery of what say you speak of, and then he just backhands her, and it's just like, don't take that tongue with me. Um, so he knows what's up, he, but he doesn't want to believe that she's involved in any kind of witchcraft or anything like that. He just at this point, I think he's writing it off to girls will be girls at the same time. Well, but also there, there's a PR element because he is, if I got it correctly, he is the, I guess the main priest, the 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 some sort of. This town, Salem, does a really bad job of separating church and state because he seems to be a, a figure of authority there, but he's also – he's a preacher. And so let's say that he's, he has a conflict of interest here. I guess he should report what's happening uh, in, in the sense that, well, he's a priest and he might have witnessed a satanic ritual. But then at the same time, his popularity is on the decline, so he doesn't want – the news of her, his niece being involved in this uh, to spread yeah, he's out. He's very concerned with her reputation. Yeah. So he basically just tells Winona to just keep it quiet. He's going to keep it quiet. They're going to stop the testing. <laughs> yeah. That's the end of the movie. They cut right before the shot of um, as everyone's hanging. <laughs> and uh, Bruce Davidson says, like, now if you'll excuse me. I'm going to go to a very important building. And then he walks to the church and holds the Bible upside down. And they, you know, the big flash bulb <laughs> comes up and starts taking pictures of him. God, what a fucking idiot. And, but this, I believe this is when the first mention of Goody Proctor comes up about sullying her reputation. It has something to do with this conversation about how we need to keep Abigail's reputation. Oh, intact. yeah, yeah. Because she got fired from the Proctor household. So there's already rumors going around that that she got fired for being a harlot or whatever the the old timey word is. She was a goody harlot. No, it's harlot. Harlot, just just harlot. No, yeah, she harlot Williams was her <laughs> her new her new name. Yeah, it's for all the movies and subject matter we've tackled. It was really hard not to laugh at like the big point of contention and the you know the divine rod in the the ground. The lightning rod was like a dude just fucking a woman who wasn't his wife and it, it causes this huge rift amongst the town and it's like man that's uh that's just another day at the office for the fine people of empire records this isn't anything new that we've haven't tackled before um we build to the moment and it is worth it because it's goddamn daniel day lewis making his debut on the contrarians podcast and what other way would you want it than him to be just a shot of him with the water in the background with a big old like sickle just harvesting wheat out in the field. It's I couldn't think of a better way to debut Daniel Day-Lewis on The Contrarians than just that shot of him looking like a damn man. He he looks rugged. He he has the hair, long hair, facial hair, dirty clothes. 
baggy pants. He looks like how deodorant and cologne ads used to look until the country and the world became obsessed with like the pretty man. Like the idea of like the perfectly groomed and manicured man. Like this is definitely something like I could see this in Old Spice ad back in the day. Or like if the if we ever tried to come up with a line, we should. This is an idea for the contrarians. We need to come up with a scent to like it can go in all the department stores. It can be the rival to Axe. We can call it Sickle and it can just have Daniel Day Lewis on it. And like in this movie, it'll have John Proctor on it. And it's like, you want to be this guy, so buy this and you will smell like him. At the same time, he does look like he he wouldn't wear deodorant. Oh no. And he did not. Did you bring that up because you read about his method acting for oh, this? Oh no, no, no. Okay. Good a time as any. Daniel Day Lewis did not bathe or shower from the time filming began mm. to when it wrapped in order to stay in character. So he would have been ripe. Holy shit. I mean, I knew he was method, but uh, did he also try to sleep with another writer just so that he would know for sure? <laughs> oh, God. I, I know I think she was like 25 when they made this, and he was just shy of 40, so it's like whatever. If they did have sex, it's whatever. At the same time, the way their characters are dressed and like presented, she looks so much younger than mm-hmm. him. So like the first interaction between them is really weird. But I knew it was still going to be fine because it's Daniel Day-Lewis. Like, he would he never. Steer me wrong. <laughs> No. He'll tell his son he's an orphan and abandon all hope of a relationship with him and murder Paul Dano with a bowling pin before he takes advantage of an underage woman. I am confident of that. He respects women. He does. He has no desire to keep any other men on this planet, uh, <laughs> much as is evident in the movie Nine. He just wants it all for himself. Uh so Reverend Hale, which is essentially the DA for the purposes of this movie, is brought in to assist with the investigation of witchcraft and satanic practices and ridding the world of, or at least Salem, of the devil and his presence. Uh, Reverend John Hale, played by Rob Campbell. Yeah, he's a ghostbuster. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because he's also, a, you know, he's like an exorcist. They never call him an mm-hmm. exorcist, but they treat him like he's an exorcist. Rob Campbell, uh, I sorry, I pulled up his acting credits, and he's in Sex in the City, and I need to figure out which one he's in now. <laughs> you need to figure out who he hooked up with? Yeah, exactly. Rob Campbell, a man of limited uh, filmography. He hadn't really been into much, but definitely a man of stage, and according to his credits, was a graduate of the Yale School of Drama. And this is a guy, Mr. Rob Campbell, uh, Reverend Hale, who is definitely up to task in this particular movie. But he immediately is like, no bullshit. It's funny the character arc his story has, because when he shows up, he's like, you know, the the detective that takes over the case that comes in and whips the sunglasses off and has some really quippy <laughs> one-liner. And, uh, you know, kind of looks at everything and says, you know what you, you, know what you need to tell me. Um, he walks in triumphant. He knows what he what he's here to, to take care of. He's fought the devil exactly. before and he's won. So he discovers that they had danced and the but they didn't try to summon. It's um Bruce Davidson basically, again, in trying to keep his reputation intact, is just kind of playing the politician role of giving an inch when the person asks for a mile. He's like, Yeah, they did this, but you don't really need to worry about that. They attend church and this is basically where they explain why he's here, and these judges are coming to town to try to figure out what the fuck happened and what's going on here. And, you know, we're going to see to this. And that's when Winona, I I didn't know until this, it didn't look to me like she was the ringleader, but this is where she just rallies the troops like she's fucking Danny Zuko. And they all, <laughs> like, 
they all leave church together while they're the rest of the town is doing like a, a hymnal and like 15 or 20 girls just get up and leave and no one thinks it's weird. Uh, but again, they're the maids. Maybe they were supposed to be going back to make a sandwich for the, the owners of the, the <laughs> It doesn't surprise me that nobody would notice in this town, though, because they are just oblivious. What, this movie felt to me like, uh, you know, in, in Parks and Rec, the sequences where they're just like the town halls. And you just have yeah. like a whole bunch of idiots, like just basically raising really stupid points and believing any sort of stupid bullshit that gets uh, brought up. That's how this was for two hours, but without the comedy. And <laughs> it's extremely frustrating. <laughs> when so you it just don't highlights have... how sad and concerning it is instead. Yeah. When you don't have Leslie Nope and Ben Wyatt to to liven things up and kind of look at the camera and tell you, hey, they're idiots, but don't worry, we, we'll figure a way out. It turns out to be a pretty grim uh, mirror to look at uh, when it comes to American politics and American communities, I think. So, yeah, of course, they don't think they're too busy praying to notice that their own kids are to put on their damn masks (laughs) and just pay attention to science. Yeah. Uh, When they return home, this is what happens is they start freaking out. They're like, shit. These uh, little shits are going to get us in trouble. So that's when they go and they start shaking the little girls like, wake up. We know you did this. And that's when they wake up and just, I, I don't want to. I want to go be with my mom. And like this girl tries to jump out the window and they all scream no. And this is basically where they do like the, where Winona starts, you know, uh, being the, calling an audible. She's a football, she's a quarterback here. And before she hikes, she's just yelling at everybody. She's like, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're just going to keep this going until we can't anymore. And that's what they do. Um, all the hubbub and excitement actually leads John Proctor to town as a previous shot of him. He clearly lives on like the outskirts. He's, he's like a Jesse Ventura type. He lives distance from everything. He'll pay his taxes. Just leave him alone. He lives in Buda. You know, he'll stay off the reserve. Just don't tax his cigarettes type thing. <laughs> yeah. And he comes to town to see what's going on. Shows up looking like a heartthrob. He's got like his duster and cowboy hat on here. It's absolutely phenomenal. We quickly learn, though, that John Proctor is not, while being a religious man, he is does not believe in witchcraft and all this devilry and all this satanic culture that they're bringing into question. Uh, as he visits town, though, this is where we discover uh, that he had had a previous affair with Abigail, Miss Winona Ryder, as she, uh, I don't want to say confronts him, but calls out to him before he leaves to go back home. And it's just basically a moment of exposition while she sweats and breathes heavily in his direction and he does his best grizzled Clark Gable just like looking down at her and literally all he had to say was I don't give a damn he said well he says something cooler in like an old English way yeah that's what I'd sooner cut my hand off before it reached for you (laughs) well first he says uh he says you'll be in the stocks before you're 20 or something uh that's that's his equivalent of flirting. He says that, and she melts. She she has yeah. to like she has to lean against the wall to to keep it if together. If it was a musical, this is the part where she go <laughs> and like as she leans back against the barn wall. But yeah, he he tries to be coy and cool, like you do, like Daniel, like exactly how I would expect Daniel Day Lewis to act if he came across a girl that at one time he had a torrid love affair with. But he really at this point holds no ill will. So he's just trying to be like, hey, you look good. You know, I, I hope all's well with you. But then she will not relent. She thinks he's playing hard to get when in reality he's just like being an adult, like, hey, that was fun. Get the fuck away from me. <laughs> and she keeps pressing the matter more and more and more to the point where she tries to ki- or she does kiss him and he has to like push her off. 
And he's steadfast in that I love my wife. You know, what we did, we did, but you need to just stay away. It is what it is. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I think that one of the through lines of the movie is that John Proctor is a good guy. He's our hero. He's an honorable guy, even though he's done some shitty things. Because it's not just that he had an affair with Nona Ryder. It's just basically he cheated on John Allen. and Canceled. Yeah. I mean, but it, and this was like. Puritan times, you know, it was yes. it was a bigger deal than when uh, when uh, when our writer cheated on on Kevin James with Channing Tatum. I mean, this is this is a, a terrible offense. It could land somebody in jail. It could get somebody hanged. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I had to dip back to other movies. I mean, that one's right there. This movie is like based <laughs> around the evils of cheating. Where that movie is a fucking comedy, and it's like. <laughs> When Nona Ryder cheated on this fat guy with this really hot guy with a tattoo on his butt. But here, this is the beginning of of basically the, the transformation of, of Winona Ryder from somebody who were like, oh, okay, well, maybe this girl got caught up into something that the, all the, these stupid adults are going to blow out of proportion into just uh, eventually becoming the, the evilest of evil people in the movie. And it's also when you can start telling that this was written by a guy because... Like I said, for all his his reprehensible behavior, Daniel Day Lewis always comes out as he has the moral high ground. <laughs> and you know, this is the guy that cheated on Joan Allen with a girl that, like you said, I mean, yeah, we know that might have been twenty five, but I'm pretty sure she's supposed to be playing younger. Oh yeah. So there's a pretty good chance that he slept with a minor at, in this Amish village in, in in Salem. So He's in the wrong, and I know he's trying to be cool and whatever, but he is the one that that starts the conversation when when she's there. You know, he knows what he's what he's getting into. He asks her if this is all her doing. He's seen like everybody freaking out about the devil and and whatever. And he's like, "This this smells like you, Winona," and that's when she starts flirting. So he's the adult. He knows what he's doing, but then the moment that Winona bites, the moment that she's hooked again, he walks away and he's like, "No, I'm I'm a man of a." Uh, I'm an innocent. I'm a respectful husband now. What would be the 1600s version of doxing? Like, what what would the Twitter of the day have found on? I'm trying to think of how they would have gotten Daniel Day Lewis fired from his job and what the campaign they would have started would have been. Crucibling. Uh, Crucibling. I mean, well, he he outs himself later in the movie. So <laughs> that's that's the way you do it in in the 1800s. You just torture their wives until they uh, confess to something. That was like the equivalent of Kevin Spacey's video that he recorded and released on Christmas was Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> admitting that he was an adulterer. Was it Christmas or Thanksgiving? Whatever it was, it was like one of the most baffling, stupidest things I've ever seen a celebrity do. Yep. Not Daniel Day-Lewis, of course. He's just, I mean, Joan Allen admits it. She was sick, wasn't able to attend to his needs. Again, doesn't that sound like something a dude wrote? <laughs> yeah. What's a homeboy's name? Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller, just I'm just like him and Daniel Day Lewis, like toasting beers in between takes, eating Cheetos and playing like Sega Genesis or whatever at the time. And then Joan Allen, hey sweetheart, can you get us another round of beers? He's apparently from Boston. <laughs> so Daniel Day Lewis does ride off into the sunset and expects this to kind of be the end of it. It's hey, we had our fun. Let's go on our separate ways. But as has been said time and time again, hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn. And boy, does that become evident in this movie. Reverend Hale, at this point, it's time to put his foot down. He just starts absolutely reaming the local women, basically just saying, 
you broads know something and you need to tell me now or so help me God, yada, yada, yada. And this at this point, God, it's awful. And Winona Ryder doesn't know what to do because they all kind of look to her because she's, like I said, she's the fucking Tom Brady. She's the quarterback of all this shit. They need, they're like, whoa, what do we do? And then she's just like, uh, the black woman did it and <laughs> sells out uh, the also the maid that she works with at um, Paris's home. Excuse me, Bruce Davison. I'm trying to find the character name. Uh, Tituba? Tituba, I yeah. believe. Tituba. She sells her out, and then, of course, they just believe her, so they go and start beating her, asking why you know, she brought the devil into, the, into their lives. And fortunately, she... I mean, this is probably the moment of... Um, it's hard to say that there's any type of like redemption or like... No, but I, you know, I know what asterisk. you're talking about. This is because I, I kind of agree that this is where a minority, a black woman that's probably been treated like shit the entire time. She outsmarts them. Yeah, she sees her the window. She sees her opportunity and seizes it. And basically, yeah. I mean, I don't know that she turns the tables on them because she still has a pretty rough go at it. But she figures out, she outsmarts them. She realizes that all she has to do for them to stop beating her is that, oh, well, yeah, you're right. I, I consort with the devil. And the devil told me that he wanted to kill <laughs> Senator Kelly. And the way she gets off is basically by exploiting how fucking stupid white people are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> she says, uh, I want to get rid of the devil. Help me. And so Hale is going to you know, exercise the demon, so to speak. And uh, but through all this, they like ask her what she sees with the devil and how the devil lied to her. And she does get this awesome like she cuts this promo on Bruce Davidson about like, <laughs> how the devil came to her as him and promised her, like, sold her a bill of goods, which you can tell by his face, because, like, guaranteed her her freedom and that she'd be with her loved ones and whatnot. And you can tell by his face that, oh, wait, that's shit I really said to her. And that's... I think one of the things throughout the movie is, too, is interesting, is, like, Bruce Davidson really doesn't believe any of it. And then at the end, he finally cracks. He's like, oh, this is all bullshit. But here... And then she kind of just keeps, like, saying what... It's basically like Family Guy. She writes this script that these people she knows is just going to fucking lap up because they don't have enough intelligence to, you know, want more. And she and this causes, of course, Winona to freak out and fight or flight. She starts making up more shit and lying of like, oh, yes. And I saw this woman's dead daughter there. And, you know, and then there was a, a pink giraffe that galloped through. And yeah, it's just completely out of control. But see, with with Tituba, it was self-preservation. Winona did not have to go there. That's no. that's once again. I I just don't. She's so fucking vain. She's just like, well, I can't have all the shine taken off of me, <laughs> right? So she took what what the what the black person was trying to do for you know for survival, and then the white person came and took it and turned it into just a weapon of evil. <laughs> She culturally appropriated this woman trying to just get away. She That's exactly it. Her fake devil worshiping was culturally appropriated. It was fucking like gentrification. She took like this woman doing what she had to do to live and survive and then fucking turned it into a Jimmy John's and said, <laughs> no, I'm going to fucking, you know, have my own way with this and get my own tension, all the glory to me. Made an app. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, I mean, again, you pointed it out. I wasn't thinking about it, I guess, because I'm a man. But you're right. The narrative of this movie is women lie. That's all they do. <laughs> Even the good ones, they're going to lie in the situation where, you know, everything depends on it. Yeah. So Daniel Day-Lewis knows the truth. He tells his wife, he tells Joan Allen, like, I know this is all bullshit, 
but it leads to a fight with them. She's like, well, how do you know this? Well, she told me when we were together, oh, you guys were alone. Women be shopping. You know, just some standard stuff here that they go through. It's basically building the tension, but also just, you know, you got to show your gun. And this is past the first act, but the gun being that Daniel Day-Lewis knows the truth. Yeah. Which, of course, comes to bite him in the ass. Yeah. Uh, but this is also another excellent example of uh, how he is in the wrong, but he walks off this the scene as if he he was in the right. He acts offended. With his shoulder pads <laughs> under his fucking shirt. Yeah. He... He acts offended that Joan Allen would be concerned, jealous that he was uh, alone with another writer talking to her. Um, he's like, I don't know what else you want me to do. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize that you won't get over it. <laughs> and he tells, he hits her with uh, the Rip Thomas line from No Holds Barred. You've built bigger walls than I ever could. I mean, the, they, they're both equal scenes of acting ability and uh, delivery you know just replace hulk hogan with daniel day lewis and you've got the the same thing um the i guess they're federal judges i just know the big deal is here come the judge here come the judge the supreme as, court uh, the supreme court they go paul Schofield, who was nominated for best supporting actor uh golden globes so yeah but uh <laughs> Him and Joan Allen both got nominations for this movie, but he plays Judge Thomas Danforth, and he's got a few of his henchmen with him. But he's obviously the 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 head honcho, the the big buccaneer, and they're there to figure out what the hell's going on. They start by putting some locals on trial, some crazy people, and then we get like a really morbid montage of like the local women just lying about people, and we see all these different people getting sentenced. There's like a fire that accidentally starts and Jeffrey Jones blames it on some old dude. Yeah. Uh, it's awful. Like this is where the movie started pissing me off because then like the, the they put this little girl on trial that lies about this old man. And um, it's just one of those things of like at this point in the movie, I started wondering like what are Winona and her flock gaining what's that, what's by the lying end game? about this shit? Yeah. Which there isn't any. There isn't any, but. I think that the 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 problem is that I, I made the Parks and Rec comparison because that's for a thirty minute sitcom you can get away with that where the point is like oh isn't it funny that they're stupid and it, you know they're just for thirty minutes you don't have to delve into the psychology and motivation of the the regular standard pawnee citizen but here when the stakes are so high, I mean, nobody's getting hanged and, or, or, you know, whipped in, in Pawnee, but here in Salem, I mean, every time that there's a, there's a lie, like a lot of people are suffering, they're getting thrown in prison. And, uh, he said, I mean, that old dude, he, he just seemed so calm when this, uh, when the little girl was lying about him, uh, worshiping the devil at some point, she's like, there's a black bird over his shoulder and everybody's acting it's, like, Oh yeah, there is one. <laughs> it's so heart wrenching too. Cause that old guy's like, I don't know what to do. I can't defend myself. And God, it's absolutely awful. Um, through all these lies and manipulation, uh, Winona Ryder does make sure to get her shot in and, uh, accuse, uh, Goody Proctor. Um, Elizabeth Proctor is her proper name uh, of being a witch. So one of the local townspeople explains this to John Proctor. And so he knows at this point that he has to take action. Finally. Yeah. He finds Winona Ryder and she's gone full like batshit crazy. Uh, this is when they're in the woods together. It's like, um, 
she starts presenting herself to him like she believes all these lies that she's telling, but like with this fucking conniving smile on her face of like, if you don't do exactly what I say, I'm gonna fuck your entire life up. She doesn't know. She doesn't know if he's wearing a wire, so she's being very cautious <laughs> with what she says. That's right. But she, like, she's letting her eyes and her mouth, or like her facial expressions, speak for her uh, of really getting her point across. But then he just cuts a classic Daniel Day Lewis promo of like, if you do this, I will burn your house down and kill everyone you love. He's like, Ed, he threatens hell. He said he'll bring hell to. Frogtown, if he needs to, like I'm finished, um, and then he walks away. Yes. So this is where it became too weird for me uh, in terms of like <laughs> just watching. And you know, you've mentioned the Parks and Rec analogies, which I think are way more fun and innocent than so much of this I'm watching. And I'm just seeing this with people in the news and people in everyday life now with this entire pandemic that's going on. Just the idiocy of people yep. and like the stupid shit they'll believe. And this is like where it got too weird because uh, Reverend Hale shows up at the proctor's residence because he's heard, you know, the accusations put against them. He wants to get to know them to see, you know, exactly what he could be dealing with here. And he says, he uses the word strange, like the expression strange time. He's like, I understand this is a strange time. (laughs) And I'm just like, Oh God, what the fuck? This is an unprecedented time. (laughs) Yes. And then Daniel day Lewis, uh, explains, you know, Hey, uh, I didn't realize the world had gone mad with all this nonsense is the quote he has. And it's it's like fucking the current marketing campaign of every like uh, restaurant and any like service industry good right now against the rational consumer of just like, look, I have nothing to hide, but don't piss on my boots and tell me it's raining type thing. <laughs> And uh, this is, they just kind of go in his house. It's, this is like a fucking, I never played uh, Skyrim, but this is definitely like an MMO or role playing type game of just, this is where you just go into someone's house to regenerate your health and get your manner up. And uh, as uh, Reverend Hale leaves, this is to me, this was uh, Joan Allen's Oscar clip about, I know I'm a good person. And if your God's telling you that because you believe this, then I don't believe or I don't agree with your God. It's a, This wasn't actually, in fact, her Oscar clip. But to me, this was her Oscar clip of just basically, I know who I am and I have my beliefs, but I'm also not a fucking idiot and don't subscribe to all this religious bullshit you do. And if you do, that's your problem, not mine. It, it almost It's almost like Arthur Miller forgot that he was supposed to be demonizing women. For just that one scene. <laughs> and yeah, and you can tell this Reverend Hale character with his fucking perm or his <laughs> press permed hair is just like, he's he, he seriously got the Cat Williams haircut, uh, which I guess that wouldn't be necessarily a perm, but it's uh, straightened. and Nobody um, else has that hair in this movie or in no. any of the movies we've made, we've done so far in the summer of Winona. And it's everyone else is like, it's the fucking 1600s. Everyone else's hair is disheveled, but this dude, I just could have done a one shot of him with like a spritz bottle. Like, <laughs> but, uh, well, he's kind of a celebrity. I, I really, Contreras Corner and Real Talk, I, he's my favorite character in the movie because he at least has something going on. He's flawed and the movie is not trying to make him look like he's the hero. Uh, but he goes on a journey. Right, it's like you said, he has the definitive story arc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he comes in, like you said, he comes in, and he's just like, I know, I have all the answers. I'm the superstar here. I'm the exorcist. I'm gonna take care of this. And then through the movie, his his own faith in what's happening starts to crumble. His eyes start opening. Of course, he ends up doing nothing, <laughs> but 
<laughs> but it's better than Daniel Day Lewis, who's like, "Well, I'm right and righteous the entire time." When, it, when yeah, with Proctor or not Proctor, but Hale, like what he does in the end when things get too rough for him, he's just like, "Fuck this, I'm done, I'm leaving." <laughs> he's the he's the just to bring it back to modern times. He's the he's the Doctor Fuzzy in this thing where he keeps trying to uh, to tell the people of Salem to. To keep calm, listen to listen to the facts. Let's not be too listen rash. Listen to reason. Let's not reopen Salem yet. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, Paul Scofield keeps just contradicting him. Fuck this! This court is corrupt, and I can't stand by anymore and watch this. Uh, so yeah, Joan Allen calls him out on it. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis again just kind of motherfucks him, and it's like, <laughs> you guys, do you understand how stupid what you're saying sounds? But they reassure, no, we're going to be able to open back up on Easter. Everything's going to be fine. The economy is going to be back. Abigail, again, scorned lover, stabs herself with a needle and blames it on Elizabeth Proctor's spirit. And uh, they come back to the Proctor residence and find a doll, like what they believe to be a voodoo doll, when in fact... One of uh, Winona's henchwomen is Mary, who's the housemaid for the Proctors, actually just made this doll for them and admits to it. It's like, no, I just made that for him. It's not a fucking voodoo doll. And they're like, are you sure? Do you swear on your life that Joan Allen didn't use this voodoo doll to try to kill Abigail? Is that is that I, I'm trying to remember if that's all it takes for Joan Allen to finally be arrested, that they found the doll. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? And then she... Yeah, and then she pulls the Aaron Eckhart, and she's like, I am the Batman. And then they take her into custody, and she just kind of lets them go, uh, take her away, that is. This is where she, like, she's really dumb, because, uh, you know, there's Arthur Miller back to his to his old tricks of just like, fuck it, he, she's a woman, so she fucked up. I think that the moment that they realize how far Winona would go, and she knows she's a target. Joan Allen has figured it out. They established that she's figured it out. She, at some point before she gets arrested, she tells uh, Daniel Day-Lewis something like, uh, the noose is closed or something, you know? And Daniel Day-Lewis is like, don't worry, they won't take you. Uh, why did she and Daniel Day-Lewis, why didn't they just use Winona's weapons against her? That was, you know, the moment that things get this dire, why wouldn't Joan Allen just kind of like fall to her knees and go like, oh my God, I just... I was dreaming and I saw the devil and Winona Ryder come at me on a black horse and they had a sword and a needle and a doll. And because it's been proven now an hour into the movie that these guys will believe anything. So why it never even crosses their mind. It's not even that they have a conversation. They're like, no, we're too good for this. We're not going to lie. It never even occurs to them that they could outsmart this 17, 18 year old by playing her own game. Yeah, it's they're the smartest people in the province <laughs> in Salem, but too smart for their own good. They don't even think of just like, yeah, exactly what you said. We sh- they should just be like, we should just tell them the fire was talking to us. <laughs> yes, exactly. And- she should have said, Oh, this doll. No, this doll. This is my God doll. It protects me. <laughs> and it just told me, Oh, right now it's telling me that we know writers full of shit. So Elizabeth Proctor is arrested, taken in with a, a whole herd of others that have been accused of being witches. I mean, they're running out of people here. <laughs> And at this point, you know, Daniel Day Lewis and Hale are like, it's all a hoax. It's all a hoax <laughs> created by the hierarchy here that's trying to imprison us. So the trial begins, and this is like the rest of this movie, with the exception of like the last 10 minutes, uh, take place in the local church slash courthouse and just is 
like ridiculousness building on itself because it's exactly like John Proctor finds himself in this court of people that have figured out we can just keep making shit up to drag out this process <laughs> and people just listen to whatever we say. It's like the invention of lying. We'll just keep appealing. Yeah, exactly. And so he like shows up and he's like, ah, I'm going to smite the court and I'm going to get out of here with my wife and we're going to be good to go. And he has a Mary, the housemaid, to just be like, yeah, fucking Abigail lied about everything. And then he brings a petition and he's like, and these are the people here that think everything's wrong. And then the judges immediately like arrest all these people. <laughs> he shows up with his link to uh, to uh, change the org. He's like, look at all these people that have signed my petition. And all he does is get the get the website blocked. Yes. And he, yeah, he then he sees all the media credentials and just pulls them all and <laughs> says, nope, no, no more of these people asking questions. And Daniel Day-Lewis is just kind of standing there like, this isn't a democracy. <laughs> and I look at him and I go, I understand your pain, brother. And uh, it just all backfires. He just went in there. So, like, I guess it's kind of deserving for how much of, like, a, a pompous ass his character is for him to think everything's going to work. And then everyone's just like, nope. <laughs> yeah, it takes them so long, you're right, to figure out that the game is rigged and that there's no way that they're going to win. Uh, and they don't. By by playing by any sort of rules, uh, because his his buddy, his neighbor, the old guy, right? It turns out that he was some sort of lawyer. Corey. Corey, yeah. And Peter uh, Vaughn. He shows up also with. He tries to to be a lawyer in this court that has no law, and makes the the crucial mistake. This is where he he says, "I have a." <laughs> An anonymous source told me that Jeffrey Jones is just making this shit up so he can take over the land of his neighbors. And they ask yeah, like, him. Who's the anonymous source? Yeah, he's like, oh, well, I, I can't tell you that. Arrest him. <laughs> <laughs> and then they eventually kill him because he won't tell him who it is. It's just. And then the judge is like, when he gives him the letter about like his um, the charges he wants to bring against Jeffrey Jones, he's like, oh, this is uh, really officially worded. He's like, there's a lot of big words in here obsequious what does that mean uh it just it just keeps falling apart in front of their eyes it's ridiculous in a normal movie around this time if not actually much sooner is when the character that knows what's up the guy that's gonna save us all shows up Mm -hmm. even if it happened at this point in the movie i would have been at least like all right better late than never but it never happens nobody ever shows up to save the day uh you know somebody from another town another judge Another, even another priest that, that's a little more open-minded, uh, you know, do show up and just kind of shows, rallies the troops and, and overthrows, you know, gets everybody to vote in November. But that doesn't happen. It's a Godzilla movie where Godzilla never showed up. It's just, <laughs> come on, someone save the day. There's this shot of Mary like crying in some abandoned house in the village and all the women come in and just kind of stare at her. And then she just cries and runs through them and gets away. And there wasn't really any point to it. Uh, She finally is okay with coming forward with her testimony of all of them lying. Uh, This is when they're at the courthouse. At this point, Hale, again, being the only really smart one, is like, uh, there should definitely be lawyers present for this. We need people who understand the law to be here. And... uh, Pence. What's the judge's Paul name? Paul Schofield. Paul Schofield. Yeah. Uh, judge Danforth is like, nope, we don't need any lawyers. And he tries to use his silver tongue to convince him. And Daniel Day-Lewis, again, to the point of him being so full of himself, he's like, I got this. <laughs> and uh, so the judge questions the woman. Uh, if she's lying, she maintains she is. And then one of the, you know, the fucking Ivanka Trump, one of the 
judges there is like, well, if you know you fainted when you claim to have seen things, faint now. And then this woman can't even pretend to faint. What the hell? She just yeah. It's not hard. Ric Flair fainted onto his face for he did the same bump every night for fucking forty years. It's not that hard to do. And she just is like it's like she's trying to start flying the way this actress shoots this she like plants her feet in the ground and you know she's straining really hard and god there's no reason i mean if nothing else hold your breath really hard and put your head between your legs <laughs> like and then try to stand back up you will faint or you can just tell them just tell them the devil won't let me faint that's all you have to do all you have god to do. i didn't even think about that you're right yeah. <laughs> all it takes you just say the devil and they're gonna buy whatever else comes out of your mouth so what should have happened is she could she should have just stopped talking and like Daniel Day Lewis could explain the devil's taken her ability to talk, <laughs> and you know how are they going to recover from that? I mean, at this point, if really if the, this is like Johnny Cochran, you know, if the glove does not fit, you must acquit. The idea, well, she can't faint, so that's it. Trial adjourned. <laughs> that, that's all it takes. So they go to take her off, and this is where we get Daniel Day, and you know, in all his glory, just yelling, "Oh!" and <laughs> Uh, explains, he fesses up to the entire thing. And then I, one of the quotes I did write down is, he calls Winona Ryder a lump of vanity and explains that this is what it is. It's just a scorned lover in the end, just causing all this problem, killing dozens of innocent people just to get back at a guy that turned her down. And, and uh, this, the judges, this gets their attention. Yeah. This is where she's finally like, uh, 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 I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And uh, I do have DDL Oscar clip here in parentheses. Oh, dude, he has like uh, five of them in the last 30 minutes of this movie. Oh, well, he's Dan Lee Lewis. But this is, <laughs> I I think it's basically because he uses the phrase whore's vengeance in this. And he like, it's he's like pounding the table and crying and explaining to the judge, you know, he's not proud of it, but he's an adulterer. He had an affair with this woman. And so that brings uh, him to, he's like, well, your wife attest to this. He's like, yeah, he's like, she ever lied? No, she's a good, honest woman. Well, go get her and. We'll ask her. He brings her like to the courthouse. It, it, there's not even a purpose for this shot, otherwise, just to show like the horrible conditions and like what uh, just complete dismay her life's in. They just show her being brought to the court in the back of like a buggy that has no roof on it, and it's just pouring rain on her. And she's just Joan Allen's just kind of standing there, bouncing around with the the rickshaw. And um, so she gets there. The judge just has like this insane level of control at this point. This is why there should have been lawyers. Cause he's like, you look at this wall. You look at this wall. You stand on one leg. You keep your finger on your nose. And then he brings in Goody and he's just like, Hey, don't look at either of them. You tell me right now. He fuck her. <laughs> and at this point, Again, you know, 1652, I guess the worst possible thing you can lose is your reputation as a faithful spouse. Uh, so she dances around it, but then says they were never, you know, intimate. I kicked her out before it got to that point. And then Daniel Day-Lewis, like like the couple that just lost at Pictionary, he like turns around <laughs> he's like, it's dignity. Can't you tell? And he tells her, he's like, no. Goody, I already admitted to it. And then, like, they get that, like, Hitchcock zoom on her face. And she's like, oh, dear God. And then she gets taken off. Even Winona. They have a close-up of Winona, too. And she cannot believe that these people are so fucking stupid. <laughs> they had her. I mean, Pulse Caulfield told her. Uh, it, it, this is, like, a pretty awesome duel of titans of acting, I think, when you get Caulfield and Ryder face-to-face -face for that one moment where... Uh, 
he he tries to give her a way out before John Allen arrives, and he goes like, uh, "Child, if you're lying, then may may the Lord have mercy on you." <laughs> and Winona holds his his stare, uh, but she knew that all all she had to do, all John Allen had to do, was tell the truth, and that was it. End of movie. Everybody lives happily ever after, except for the people that have already been killed <laughs> in this this witch hunt. But but no, the the one time. That you know, she really could have benefited from uh, telling the truth. She just decides to spare that piece of shit, uh, Daniel Day Lewis. And again, you know, it's like when Daniel Day Lewis fucks up this way, the music swells and he gets shot from like you know a, a lower angle. He looks like a hero. When Joan Allen messes up, it's just everybody looks at her like, God damn it! <laughs> another forty-five minutes. Even when other writers like kind of disappointed, <laughs> she's like, she's completely lost her faith in humanity at this point. It's just she's like I I can't believe people can be so dumb. So then all of this causes Mary to completely just crack, and she's like, "Fuck it, can't beat them, join them. They, they're going to get all the power anyway." So she says, "John made me do it. He's got the devil." Uh, and the whole town confronts him. Like, is this true? Or were you sent by the devil? And he's like, "No." But if you're asking about my opinion of God, God is dead. And, <laughs> He's like wearing his fucking, you know, uh, clam digging boots. He's in the middle of the water, just wearing his waders. And uh, again, at this point, all of uh, Daniel Day Lewis's dialogue from this point forward is either yelled or said through like gritted teeth and tears following, flowing. It's just a uh, thirty minutes of Oscar clips. Yeah, yeah. And then we get another montage. Uh, my baby takes the morning train starts playing as we see all these people being hung one by one uh, after being found guilty of witchcraft. Oh, uh, and and almost so casually, he doesn't even get his own shot. Uh, that This is when uh, when Hale quits. He's had enough. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> has, has taken the spotlight. He's screaming that he doesn't believe in God. And just kind of like in the background, Hale goes like, I quit. Yeah, it's during all the chaos. And you can tell it was clearly put in post. They had him come back to record this line where he's like, I can't take this court anymore. I quit. You never see his and... face because he just got his stunt double to uh, <laughs> to walk off. <laughs> um, So the morning before... John is set to be hanged. Abigail goes and visits him in uh, his holding cell. And I mean, this is the, this is the logical conclusion for the Abigail character, like a fucking thief in the night. She's like Kyle Reese or, you know, any one of those movies where you fall for someone you shouldn't have and they're gone by the morning. It's uh, Eva, the end of Metal Gear Solid 3. Snake wakes up. It's like, what? Where the fuck? I trusted this person. <laughs> and Abigail just completely robs Bruce Davidson and robs him blind, goes and sees John and is like, hey, I got all this money. We can go. There's a boat waiting. And he's like, I, she she like clearly is freaked out with how much has happened by her just trying to win him back here. <laughs> this is her best moment of acting because she's like, I never meant for any of this to happen. I just kind of wanted us to be together. And he says something to the effect of like, women, if we... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He says, if we ever see each other again, it will not be on a boat, but in hell. And then she just kind of leaves and flees for good. Yeah, that's the last yeah. we see of an owner writer. Much like in The Dilemma, that's that's it. She dis- She's not there for the movie's climax. The difference being with The Dilemma is like she's being smart in this situation <laughs> of just like, I used up and completely fucked up this entire society. So I'm going to steal this money and get the hell out of here. Let's see what else I can do in the world. Yeah, exactly. 
So what is John going to do? Because he is posed with the situation as Bruce Davidson's freaking out. He's like, she took all my money. <laughs> I don't know what to do. And the judge, uh, Paul Schofield, does have this awesome part where it seems like for a second he forgot his line and then remembers <laughs> it because he just looks at Bruce Davidson like, you are a <laughs> stupid man or something. He, there's some, it might say foolish, but whatever the case is, he just there's a long drag in there where he's trying to remember. And he was looking off camera and... Daniel Day-Lewis was motioning, drag it out, drag it out. So to the point, John is faced with, uh, as Davidson is scrounging to try to figure out what's going on, they don't have their star witness anymore. So he's like, well, we can get out of this. We can give John the ability to sign the declaration that said he was possessed by the devil, but now he wants to give his life to God, and we all win. It'll be a big PR stunt. Here we go. So uh, they explain this to Joan Allen. They explain this to Daniel Day-Lewis. And they go to discuss, you know, what they're going to do and what what the next step is. Essentially, that being, if he just signs this piece of paper, him and Joan Allen can go home and live together. Right. All he has to do is lie like she did. <laughs> Only this time, yeah. the lie would be for for their happiness. All he has to say is that uh, Winona was not lying, that, that he was consorting with the devil. So this was, um, this is the actual... Oscar clip? Oscar scene. Yeah, this was Joan Allen's Oscar clip at the 1997 Academy Awards. I can see it. As Christopher Plummer presented it, <laughs> having won Best Supporting Actor the year prior. And um, they just have it back and forth. He's like, if I do this, will you still love me? She's like, sure. He's like, what if I don't? It's like, well, you'll be dead, so that'll <laughs> suck. Oh, and this is where uh, where she apologizes. This is what the movie's been building up to. She apologizes for making him cheat. That's the, the climatic well, of moment of that, of that conversation when she says, I'm sorry, I was not a good wife. I was I was cold and I drove you away. And then he says, I forgive you and hugs her. Uh, and then they kiss and then he says, I want my life. And so they have this proclamation or this contract or whatever the hell. They have a quill, so you know it's a legally binding document. <laughs> They're like, all right, so sign this. So he signs it. And the other people being taken away to be hung are like, you fucking sell out. And they can just basically boo them. Uh, to them, it's like the night that Dylan played electric for the first time. They're just screaming Judas at him. So he signs it. And they're like, excellent. We're going to go hang this on the door of the church. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's like in uh, Airheads where they sign the deal. And then it's not at all what they thought it was going to be. So he's like, no, can't we just know that I signed it? And like, can I keep it? And can we throw it away? Can we never speak of this again? <laughs> yeah. It's because he knows he lied. And they, they start catching on to it. They're like, so is that not true? It's like, no, it is. I want to live. They're like, well, we're going to go hang it on the church. And he's like, no, I don't want you to. And they ask why. And then he lets out he just bellows, because it's my name. <laughs> and then it's quiet. And everyone's kind of, okay. <laughs> uh, so is it a confession or not? And then he tears it up in front of him. And at this point, Hale and even Bruce Davidson are like, what the fuck are you doing? The, and they try to get his wife to talk some sense into him. Yeah. And then we get another like, it's like a, an Avengers shot because it's like this sweeping under close up. And she's like, uh, there goes my hero. And then she salutes him. <laughs> As he as he hops on the on the carriage, just taking the other his the other people are gonna get killed. The other two older ladies, and uh, my hero by the Foo Fighters starts to play. Yeah, I, again another triumphant moment 
after Daniel Day-Lewis basically does the wrong thing. He's he's like the equivalent, I guess, in the, of, of a Bernie bro, where he just, he's stuck to his principles. But in the end, you know, those two ladies were going to die anyway. And now, and now his, when, his children are... When they were fathers. arresting him, he just kept screaming, I do not consent. <laughs> it was like, that's good. He he went, he went to, he hung believing that he had done the the proper thing but now john allen has to raise those two kids three kids actually because she's revealed to be pregnant he could have been like matthew lillard at the end of slc punk if he just saw the bigger picture and the hierarchy of everything and got a good job and lived his life but he ends up like matthew lillard at the end of scream (laughs) where he thinks he's too smart and too good for everybody else and now he's gonna die because he gets taken to the gallows and put up on the scaffold and uh, it's him and two other women who both, to their credit, they never wavered. They maintained their innocence the entire time. They have more of a spine than Daniel Day-Lewis does in this case. I'm sure Arthur Miller would tell you that's only because they were too dumb. Like, a- <laughs> and, uh, and then like when um, they start singing Santa Claus is Coming to Town at the end of Elf, the community comes together. They start saying the Lord's Prayer as they're one by one hung. He doesn't even get to say amen because Daniel Day-Lewis gets to the forever and ever and then whoop, gets pushed off and then fade to black. Yeah, he could have, uh, you know, he could have just left Salem. It's I know back in the day you couldn't just hop on a plane and, and, and you know, go across the world. But it also I kind of get the feeling that it didn't take too long to just ride off and leave the shitty town where his name has been sullied and just start anew. There's no Internet. Nobody's gonna know about no. that whole shit that happened uh, back in Salem. He, he can just be like, "I'm Daniel Day Lewis. I'm still a hunk. <laughs> Got my wife and three kids. I'm handy with with a with a scythe." He could have just started. Look at what Ted Bundy was able to get away with, man, for decades. <laughs> yeah, like this guy just cheated on his wife once, and she still wants to stay with him. Moved to Shelbyville. All his friends were already dead. There was no reason for him to stay. And like they were like a good football field away from those guards too. When they're talking, those fuckers don't have guns. <laughs> and they were like by a body of water. If you just said told Joan Allen, it's like, all right, we're gonna make a go for it. They they conceivably could have outrun them. And then if they weren't, which of those old fuckers is going to be able to take Daniel Day Lewis in a fight? And all he has to do is like the devil told me that you need to let me go. <laughs> Help! The devil's got a hold of me. <laughs> uh, but no, he stuck to his morals. He tried to be a decent man in an indecent time, and he paid dearly for it. Yeah. Uh, so the moral of the story is, don't get involved with women. <laughs> yes. <laughs> don't get involved with women, and if you do, and they, they do you wrong, then uh, you know you show him what's what by by sticking to your principles and letting everybody else die. And if you're a woman, the moral of the story is you can get away with anything. <laughs> Unless you're Joan Allen. I guess that's true. You can get away with anything as long as you're young and attractive. <laughs> <laughs> that's the moral of the story. Uh, yeah, if you're if you're just like, if you're a matriarch, then you're screwed. You're already, uh, it's only 20 and under. <laughs> Done your time. All right. There's so much more to that movie than I remembered. There was a we'd get somewhere and then be like, oh, wait, 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 we got to go back because we missed this little skadoodle here. Uh, Are you ready to move this along to Real Talk? Let's go to Real Talk. I come to tell you to think on what to do to save yourself. You say you are blind to spirits. You cannot see them anymore. And you will never cry witchery again. 
speak so, John. I understand. But my spirit's changed entirely. I suffer now. <laughs> it's the truth, John. Look! The bite your wife gave me is not yet healed. My wife? Saturday, she come into my bed in the middle of the night and bite at my breast. My wife has not left the house this month. Why must she leave the house to send her spirit on me? Don't George Jacobs come jabbing at me with his walking sticks. Feel the lumps he gave me only last night. George Jacobs is locked up in the jail. And thank God he is. They're going to hang him, you know. And he prays, you know. He prays in jail. May he not pray. They torture me at night while he's praying in the jail. That hypocrite. And they all are. And thank God I have the power to cleanse the town of them. Hear me. If you cry words against my wife, it will be the end of you. I will not have her condemned. I am but God's finger, John. If he would condemn Elizabeth, she would be condemned. You know me. If she is condemned, it will be the end of you. All right, I am recording for Real Talk. Excellent. Hello, and welcome to Real Talk for The Crucible from 1996. You're going to have to get creative with the editing uh, Contrarian's Corner, Julio. It's like one of our <laughs> longest Contrarian's Corners we've ever done. I think I think that it, it's doable. I No, it I mean, is. Even not, There's a lot there to talk about. There was a lot of pauses. About. Yeah, but it, it, it can be done. <laughs> they will never notice. Uh, so, The Crucible, starring Daniel Day-Lewis and the woman of the summer, Miss Winona Ryder. The temperatures in Texas, I think it was at least 103 every day last week. Nothing hotter than the torrid love affair between Winona Ryder and <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, directed out of, by, all the, out of all the romances we've had in the summer of Winona, is this, is this uh, the hottest, the most no. tragic? The hottest uh, thing we've still seen in the summer of Winona is the Channing Tatum Winona Ryder kiss. Just that <laughs> porn kiss that they have. There's no way you kiss someone like that without the intention of fucking. And then like here, <laughs> here we do get the part though where like Winona in like the height of her insanity and like where she's just full of her own shit. She's like, and old man Jacobs beat me with his canes in my sleep last night. Here, feel. And then takes Daniel Day-Lewis's hands and puts it on her fucking clam. And he's like, get, uh, unhand me, woman. <laughs> Uh, but no, not the hottest, because like I said, just from a visual, uh, you know, first glance perspective, she's obviously made to look much younger than him, so it's a bit off-putting. But this movie is directed by Sir Nicholas uh, Heitner? Hitner? I think it's a man Heitner. Of Heitner, a man of uh, specifically theater directorial fame, had many, many plays and theater productions that he directed uh, operas as well. Uh, his filmography is quite short. Uh, in addition to The Crucible, consisted of The Madness of King George, The Object of My Affection, Center Stage, The History Boys, The Lady in the Van, and Talking Heads. Directed by Mr. Heitner, written by Arthur Miller, the screenplay uh, based on The Crucible, the play by Arthur Miller, so he was double-dipping here. Uh, released on November 27th of 1996, uh, bo- uh, budget, excuse me, got ahead of myself there, of about $25 million, and this bizom didn't even make $8 million back, which is Ooh. surprising considering. But again, 
I was about to say, well, if you release that today, it wouldn't be the case. But even still, Daniel Day Lewis is like a respected actor, but I don't, he's. <laughs> In many ways, he is not The Rock. Like, I wouldn't trust to put his name on a movie and it immediately guarantees it's going to make $100 million. But still, man. So, 96. This might just been a little too soon because this was... We were about to enter the... I wouldn't say the golden age necessarily, but we were about to enter that big boom of romantic tragedies we had romeo and juliet the Baz lerman you had titanic coming up you had shakespeare in love there was uh, a series that was yet to come so i think this movie might have just missed the uh they were a little too early to the party not wow. to say that un- under different circumstances it could have done any better but but also it's just so i mean the difference between this and all those others is that the the romance <laughs> those other movies are good <laughs> I mean, no, this no, no, no. is this is much better than Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet. It's better than Titanic. Fuck off. <laughs> I almost spit my whiskey out. I I knew you were going to go there too and I I like I can always trust you to shit on Titanic and I can always trust myself to not be able to not get mad at it. It just <laughs> I was thinking I mean I was thinking about that movie earlier today too when we were Titanic? doing this cuz I was yeah, because I was looking at movies around the same time because I got on the thought of what I was just talking about. And uh, yeah, such a good movie. Anyway, so I think tonally, they definitely, if this came out a, a year or two or even three later, when, in the wake of those movies, they definitely could have marketed this differently to try to capitalize on that. Uh, but obviously, at the end of this, this wouldn't appeal to the same audience that those would in the sense of like the teens and that that type of thing of... Yeah, crying at the end because love is estranged. Right, there's you're not rooting for a for a love story here. I mean, the closest you get is Daniel Lewis and Joan Allen, but that's not really about will he get the girl, will she get the boy, will they live happily ever after. This is more of will they survive, <laughs> will they survive persecution. Uh, no, I think this is too much of a downer for for that audience, the audience that's going to all those other movies. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was too political, politically charged for mainstream audiences. And I was getting like worked up watching it because it's the type of thing like we joked about in the first portion of the podcast of like, um, it's so stupid. It's so <laughs> dumb. Like that, not the movie per se, but just like the characters in the movie are so fucking stupid and all these things they're believing. And, and, and then to think that was like a real thing and that. <laughs> there was like a meme I saw not too long ago that it was it was like um, a woman in the 1600s and it was doing that thing with your thumb where you make your it looks like your thumbs, you know, you pull it off. Uh-huh. And then it would the, like the panel down was like townspeople chasing her with pitchforks and torches. <laughs> like because that's essentially what this story tells. And I was getting worked up at these characters of like, you idiots, can't you see this in front of you? And then also the things we're talking about really. It is reflective of what's going on right now and just how fucking dumb people are and the shit that people believe and the the idea that uh, just because someone you perceive to have a higher authority than you tells you something is fact that you believe it as such. And again, we're not talking about these people's bosses. Like, that's the thing of, like, it's just some person they perceive to have power. It, it was, and I do think that too because... 
whether they were trying to or not make this politically charged for the time of you'll do what we tell you to do. And if you don't ride you out of town on a rail, the story of it's very fascinating and it is very frustrating. Yeah. I think that as a, as a commentary or a, an attack on uh, McCarthyism, I mean, that's to me what, what makes it really interesting, but it also might be what pushed a lot of people away. Um, I, I mean, I'm with you watching it. I was frustrated and angry and really uncomfortable kind of the way that I was uncomfortable with Edward Scissorhands last time, except that this is more, uh, this is not a fairy tale, this is more real. Um, but it was also, it gives you a lot to think about because, uh, and I really, I specifically stayed away from this in Contrarian's Corner because it's too complex to kind of address in the middle of trying to be funny. But mm-hmm. just the idea of, of, you know, it's not really mob mentality and it's not, uh, the thing is, if you're aware of McCarthy of the the communist witch hunt and all that stuff. It's a very easy parallel to draw, and it's very easy to be like, and they were in the wrong, right? Uh, you had McCarthy bring in somebody and be like, "Hey, they said you're a communist. I'll let you off, but you have to give me the names of ten communists." And then that person would be like, "Oh, well, okay, here's ten. And then they bring those ten, and they make that offer to those ten, and they another you know hundred, and so on. And obviously, it's simplified in the movie to a ridiculous degree and yet it's still believable that mm-hmm. when you put religion as your when religion is your only compass to achieve justice then of course you fall in the trap of going like uh, i think paul scofield actually has a, a a bit of dialogue where he goes like listen normal justice requires witnesses <laughs> to determine the truth but when you're talking about witches well it's only between the witch and the person that's being uh bewitched you can't bring the witch to the stand so you just kind of have to go by the testimony of one person. It's stupid, but I if also believe If you stop that- doing tests, then we won't have any <laughs> positive results. Yeah, exactly. But so it's like you watch The Crucible and there's very clear like, well, this is wrong. You know, everybody's wrong. The system is wrong, etc. You You learn about the communist witch hunt and you're like, yeah, that was just, you know, McCarthy had his own agenda. He exploited the system and... You know, they, he basically they created uh, an atmosphere, much like in the Crucible, where innocent people were willing to confess to things they hadn't done, or were willing to like throw other people that were also innocent under the bus just so that they would get the the heat off of themselves. So so far so good. But then the joke that I stayed away from was that uh, Winona Ryder was also like doing the Me Too movement uh, disservice. <laughs> Because, you know, I could see somebody like uh, fucking uh, Miramax guy, Harvey Weinstein, going like, well, listen, I was being prosecuted basically on the word of all these women. I had been on a writer saying, you know, that I did it and everybody else did. I think the difference is that for all of our failures, we are at a point where we at least we don't just go by, you know, we don't say, hey, God told us or <laughs> or, you know, the, the incentive of like, hey, give me some extra names so you can get off easy was not there in the way that, you know, it was there during the McCarthy era or in the in the story of the Crucible. Uh, I think that this, the, the way that the system is set up now, there, there's a lot. It's not as simple as when our writer saying, hey, Harvey Weinstein did this, and then suddenly everybody believed it. It's more like, well, there was like a valve that was like, the pressure was uh, there, and it finally exploded. Uh, mm-hmm. But it still, you know, makes you take a step back, because 
I understand the argument of the people that are like, well, what prevents a Winona Ryder of doing something like this to me? Even though I side with uh, with any woman that's accusing somebody, that's, you know, saying, hey, this happened to me. I don't know. I was watching this movie and I was like, it's making a very uh, solid argument against the communist witch hunt. And at the same time, if you wanted to look at it on the surface, it's also making an argument against... Uh, it's not even cancel culture, you know, but it's just something like something stronger uh, mm. that's happening here. The fact that There's you can just a shocking amount of modern parallels. Yeah. Like that, that there's no way in 1996 they could have predicted if someone watches this, is, watches this 24 years from now, they'd be able to find so much relevance in it. Right. But it's, I mean, it's, it's crazy that I think, you know, it's not even that things are cyclical, but also that maybe we just don't change that much and that. Uh, it's uh, the power of words. Like, that's what it's trying to say of like, I understand what you're saying too. And it's kind of hard to articulate, but the idea of, especially in times like this, but that's still prevalent to this day, even in times where there's no concrete evidence or anything like that, the power of words is very intense. And the also to well, the... I, I think that's it, actually, that, you know, that, that I was having trouble, like, getting there, but... Uh, well, it's also, you I, gotta, we both, talking about this, you don't want to say something that makes you seem insensitive, so... Well, yeah, uh, that's that's, I, I that's the thing. That, But I was trying to, I'm having trouble, like, expressing, like, what I feel is the difference. And the difference is that, again, for all our flaws, you know, when you talk about somebody like Harvey Weinstein, like, there was a due process there. Yeah, it was in Paul Scofield taking it on his own hands, him and like a bunch of cronies and just basically making arbitrary decisions. I think that, fuck, some people might have said that it took too long, but the point is that an accumulation of testimonies and an investigation and, you know, defense lawyer and, a, you know, a DA, there was there was a process, you know, that, that obviously- Bob Campbell wanted a lawyer there. He's like, we need attorneys here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And fuck, there were no decisions, as far as I can tell, like being made on the, you know, just on the basis of religion, the ethereal uh, quality of justice when it comes to witchcraft that that Paul Scofield talks about in the movie. You know, that was not an issue then. And it's like a lot of things remain the same, but tiny little things change. And that sometimes well, makes all the difference. What the parallel to this is like, yeah, with Harvey Weinstein and fucking sacks of shit like that that have actually been put in prison. Um and there's plenty more that should be. But the idea, kind of piggybacking what you're saying today, is like Scofield and his crew, That that's like society and Twitter and like <laughs> people now that just basically take it upon themselves to just jump to their own conclusions based on what's ever presented to them and then try to ruin someone's life because of it. It's paralleled in this movie. I saw that in like the idea of like... Uh, when no writer just able to just make this shit up and then they'll just be like, well, this person said this and it's plausible because of this. So we're going to go hang you now because of it. And it's the mob mentality, like you said of it in that much like in this movie, there's a reason these processes and these things exist. But then when you take them to these extremes, it hurts the sanctity and the, it compromises the integrity of the operation to begin with in a lot of ways. Yeah. At the same time, I understand the frustration with, I mean, this is not in the movie, but the frustration with the, the process to begin with. So I can see how if you feel like the process has failed you or has failed people that you know, then you feel like, okay, well, then I need to do something else because it's it's going to fail again. I could see how somebody would argue that 
well, the movie's showing you a lot of people agreeing on something, and it's still not true. But that's because, you know, the movie sets up a scenario where a lot of people are are willing to lie to save their their ass. But that's... Uh, it's also 400 years ago when people didn't really know better. Yeah, but, it, but you know, you, you put it on, on, again, on the McCarthy era, where a bunch of people were, like, lying yeah, also. Yeah. But it's but again you they put had it an, on the Trump era. <laughs> well, yeah, you know it's like they, they you have to have that incentive to lie. You know how how exactly are you benefiting from from this lie? And you know obviously, you know here forget Winona. You know you're talking about like the people that lie just because they don't want to. Is either you confess or you hang. So you confess, and confessing it means implicating other people. Uh, well, that's where too, the, the whole idea of like we we made light about it, but it is true also of like. Again, I can't. I, I don't want to say something that seems insensitive, so I don't want to say something like "playing the victim" because that's definitely a, a phrase that should probably be retired. But the narcissism, I think, would be the better word to describe uh, Winona in this. Like the whole scene where, like, the uh, maid that makes everything up, and then Winona's like, "Well, fuck, this is going to take the attention off of me, so I have to, <laughs> you know, come up with something of my own." The vanity of man, and like, in a lot of ways, I think. A lot of people would say we're overanalyzing this because the story at the end of the day is just a scorn. To me, what I interpret it as is the scorned lover that just got pissed off and didn't care whose life she ruined just to make sure she ruined the dude who broke her heart's life. But through that, obviously for all these things we're discussing, there's a lot to take away from it. And uh, in a lot of cases, people in these situations, their vanity shines through incredibly so. And I see we see a lot of that today with uh, I will use the phrase play the victim for obviously we keep referencing Trump and things like that but people in that position that are clearly in the wrong but want to spin it for their own vanity needs to say hey this was I don't even know in this movie would you say Winona Ryder's ever initially in the wrong until she just like her ego runs away with her to me the whole beginning of the movie was just like these girls just playing dumb and not really understanding what they're doing. I think that it's that's the case, but it also I, I think that's probably the weakest part of the movie for me. I, I kind of alluded to it in Contrarian's Corner that they just kind of do this because you know that uh, the fact that it's just so random. I mean, the consequences are massive, and I understand how once the ball gets rolling, it's just impossible to stop it, but. Yeah, if you go just from what the movie's showing you, it's not even that initially she's doing it with Daniel Day-Lewis and his wife in mind. She's just doing it because she got caught dancing in the middle of the night with her friends and doesn't want to get in trouble. It's but just, It's just this lie that keeps evolving over time. It just keeps getting more and more insane. And to not completely pick on Trump, I did want to say uh, Harvey Weinstein would be another person where vanity, where the case got away from him, like on his sentencing date, I think it was where he showed up with his walker and like acted like he tripped and fell on the stairs getting there. That whole, I mean, that's these fuckers that are in the wrong, but want to, they still need to play to their ego. He just went, it's my name. (laughs) That's not too close off for uh, Cosby when he just like didn't when he got sentenced he was like ah fuck or something like that he, or no see, it that's was, that's what I find fascinating though that that you know I'm a hundred percent sure that we're in the right and I I have zero problems like speaking of Weinstein and Cosby and you know so many others like, as guilty oh, yeah. but I guess while I was watching the movie I I did have that moment of introspection where I was like okay well. Why is it that I don't question my certainty? You know, it's like I wasn't there. You know, 
for, for any of this. You know, what? where am I getting all my facts from? And yes, at the end of the day, I think that as a society and as, as, as just a person, you know, we're like in a much advanced playground than the people from Salem and hopefully even the people from the 50s uh, during McCarthyism. But That's the idea. We should be more evolved. Yeah, you would hope. And I, w- I would like to think that, you know, I would never like accept that at face value and, and you know i would always like do my own research and try to seek different points of view or whatever but it's like all right what was it like to be uh, a friend of uh, daniel day lewis in in salem and just seeing him taken after everybody has accused him of being uh, a, a devil worshiper and and all your authorities are like yeah well he is but but why because we we, we got proof he you know Everybody else said because so. Because we said. <laughs> because we said. He said he didn't like God. Uh, all that stuff. It's That's what I I think the one reason I like the movie so much. I think I like it more than you do. It's just that a movie that can engage me intellectually that much and make me think about something, you know, about today and back then and further back. It makes me just examine my beliefs and shake me a little bit and kind of, you know, I think that that's what keeps you... It keeps your brain working, you know. That's I, I think that maybe a lot of what we see on social media, you know, in the world, the people that are just kind of like the people that are the herd that are just following, you know, whatever, you know, that's whatever exactly headline they it. read. You know, it's like yeah, you just lost that analytical power. That herd mentality is exactly right, and it's turning that way with both sides of it. It kind of makes me wish we had a situation like this movie of like, well, you can be on this side and you we can all agree or you're on this side and just get the fuck away. <laughs> but it's much more dangerous than that now. It's the it's not even just the right and the left and there's like these offshoots and whatnot, but that's that's there's herd mentality on both sides. And unfortunately, it, it's a very much like this and the division being, okay, you need to either believe exactly this and you're with us, or if you believe anything that deviates from that, you're going over here. And that's, unfortunately, that's getting more and more black and white, red and blue, whatever you want to say. And we're becoming more and more like this movie in that sense of, if it's not God's will, then it's what we have outlined as a will for people that believe what we believe. And it's becoming so vicious like this. Obviously, we're not fucking leading people to the gallows in the streets, but it is well, it is becoming a violent situation. If you if you don't if you're not on this side of the argument, we're going to fight you to believe on this side of the argument right now. It's obviously in a much more advanced way using fucking smartphones and shit. It's not just people writing with quills and stuff like that, but <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to it watching this and like a dozen people get hanged in it. But I feel even still with the uh, story that it tells, it doesn't even feel half as violent as the things are today with (laughs) disagreements and whatnot. Obviously, it's way more uh, visceral and way more brutal. But I don't know. I I appreciate what you're saying. And a lot of my issues with the movie don't lie with the story of the telling. It's just some of the performances were not particularly uh, good. Listen, Jeffrey Jones did what he could. Yeah, looked sweaty and bloated the entire time. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think there's a lot to take away from this, and it can obviously lead itself to some interesting discussions. I think part of that, though, is you have to have the ability to see this from both sides of the equation. Because if you treat it just like we did in Contrarian's Corner, which I'm sure there's been... Many people that have watched this movie, be like, God, these people are fucking stupid. But then you have to, if you have to have the, if you have the intellect and the ability to kind of lift yourself above it, like Neo, and just kind of watch it, and then think about both sides of the equation, 
uh, it definitely lends itself to some interesting uh, introspection. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I'm still grappling with it. And I, I think it makes, it's not so much that it makes a case against movements like Me Too. It's more that it makes a case for due process. You know, it's like you can have both. But I think that sometimes, like I said, frustration can lead you to disregard due process. And then this movie is kind of like a cautionary tale of what happens when <laughs> when that's the case. Uh, that maybe in an effort to achieve results, we can get on a fast track that can lead to terrible mistakes being made. I, I don't think that that has happened, you know, but I think that that's like the danger that's always there. And, in, in, you know, you need a reminder every now and then. And to that, yeah, I, I certainly didn't take away what, I, and I hope anyone listening wouldn't take away that me and Julio, either one of us or what we're saying or read on this is to discourage things like Me Too or speaking out or whatnot, but it's more of like, there's uh, due process is needed. And obviously in both cases being modern and applying to this movie revisions to that are needed, but also the things that can come from it when things like that begin. And this idea of these floodgates being opened and like you use the example of like the pressure valve just exploding and look, I understand the definition of irony here with these situations are two dudes talking about it. And in my case, a fucking white dude. So <laughs> I certainly don't mean to, to preach with it, but it does, I think the entire idea, especially in the real talk of these, when we watch movies that have interesting ideals like this is to promote discussion and kind of go with these ideas and hone in on that. And the whole idea with the floodgates being opened in any scenario is the casualties that can come along with that. And um, a lot of times with this and Edward Scissorhands, I think it's just, it's obviously human nature to when these things happen to up in arms and embrace it with this mob mentality. But like we've seen with both of these movies and just generally speaking, I wish it worked better than it does, but it doesn't because usually it just, it devolves to this base level and usually mob mentality results in the original idea behind something being lost or at least heavily diluted. And I think that's, something that's found in the two movies we've done. And unfortunately today in a lot of ways also, um, you know, I feel like we got a lot of our feelings about the actual meat and potatoes, the nuts and bolts of the movie across in the first portion. Uh, I mean, it's, it's Daniel day Lewis. It's he, he is the, the one he is. If there ever really was a Neo, it's him. He's <laughs> not Jedly. Jedly is also the one. Oh, that's right. That was the, there was that movie. The one. Um, there was also Floyd Mayweather versus Canelo Alvarez, which was <laughs> the one. Um, he's never going to be bad in anything. And like I said, from the moment I saw him, I was like, hell yeah, it's Daniel Day-Lewis. I, I'm not kidding. Like, There Will Be Blood like, legitimately changed my life. Like That movie was just <laughs> unbelievable. And here, he's still... Uh, I mean, he had already done My Left Foot, which I believe he won an Oscar for. Is that right? Uh, if he didn't, at least he was nominated, because I remember that. So he was by no means wet behind the ears uh, here, but um, yeah, he won Best Actor. And he had done, I know the boxer came after this, but he had already worked with Scorsese and he was already seasoned at the same time. And he's only made seven movies since this. But having seen what we, (laughs) yeah, the boxer, um, the Boxer, Gangs of New York, Ballad of Jack and Rose, There Will Be Blood, Nine, Lincoln, and Phantom Thread. 
But what I was going to say is, listing those movies there and then seeing this, he's obviously great. At the same time, his best stuff was yet to come. And watching him in 1996 through 2020 lenses, uh, you might find yourself a little more critical than you should be because you're just going to be like, uh, no, I'm just meaning in the sense of like, I've seen There Will Be Blood. So what I mean by critical (laughs) is that when this movie was over, it was like, wasn't the best thing I've seen him in. Uh, But still, I mean, it's Daniel Day-Lewis. And I know I make so many hyperbolic claims on here all the time about, oh, I'd watch this person do anything. I'd watch this person do anything. I'd watch her in anything. But like Daniel Day-Lewis is really, you stop what you're doing and pay attention. This is one of the movies too that I spent the least amount of time on my phone or doing something like uh, like on my work computer doing something, watching just because he's so enchanting. Everything he does, you want to pay attention to. And obviously classically trained in the sense of like stage and that really helps out here. Him, uh, Rob Campbell, uh, and Paul Schofield, all specifically very obvious, have spent their fair share of time on the hardwood and in front of bright lights. Whereas God bless her, Winona Ryder, and uh, <laughs> oh, here to comes. make her not fe- to make her not feel left out, I'll just I'll lump in Jeffrey Jones also. Uh, <laughs> Quick sort of sidebar. I so I listened to I didn't listen to all of the commentary, but a good chunk of it. And uh, Nicholas Heidner mentioned that he hoped that people didn't walk into the movie uh, automatically thinking of Winona Ryder's character as a villain, because he felt that she had a lot going on that would make her, if not entirely sympathetic, at least that like you understood where she was coming from, and. Uh, he was saying that, you know, she was a young person that was having to deal with a lot of repression and that one of the reasons she acts out is because, I guess, you know, she is, if not in love with Daniel Day-Lewis, at least heavily lusting after him. And, well, this is just the only thing that, that she can think of. I don't know that Clearly. that comes across in the movie because, I mean, I was just complaining about it, I don't know, 10 minutes ago. I, I really can't tell you, uh, even if that's what what... what leads Winona is that what's also like guiding all the other girls that join her you know is is the answer to the question of what brought this about uh, uh, sexual repression maybe that's the intent but I don't I don't think that that comes across no I was gonna say it comes across that she's lusting after Daniel Day-Lewis like when she sees him that first scene and she like slips and falls like, on herself <laughs> against the barn wall she's like yeah. ah, like when he turns around and looks at her <laughs> uh, it's like fucking jason biggs when shannon elizabeth touches his thigh <laughs> uh but yes miss winona Ryder, the diminutive female star of the summer uh it's just i guess you, i take it you like turn it i mean i'm not gonna say this isn't in her wheelhouse but just the problem inherently is she's versus Daniel Day-Lewis in this. And he obviously has extensive experience and train, not training, but you know what I mean? Like practice at this type of acting and this type of setting where she likely does too, but not to the extent of him. So I believe this better way of putting it. I believe Daniel Day-Lewis is, lives in 1652 in this movie. <laughs> I think Winona Ryder is trying to act like someone who lives in 1652. I can kind of see it. Uh, I don't know. I think that what muddles the waters for me is that, one, the age difference. I think that 
I may be giving her a pass because she's supposed to be younger. And so mm-hmm. whenever she hits a false note, to me, it just seems like, well, because she's a, she's a child sort of that's pretending. So, you know, yeah. she's not playing, she's not playing an actress. So to me, and every time that she hits a false note, it's just like, well, those are the chinks in the armor and it makes it even more ridiculous uh, by, by design that all these adults are not seeing the bullshit that she's, you know, pushing their way. So you're doing like Robert Downey Jr. Tropic Thunder levels here. <laughs> I mean, because that's what I was thinking about it, uh, especially rewatching it with the commentary, because, you know, you don't really get a lot of the dialogue, but her she gets to be very over the top here while everybody else is being more naturalistic. I mean, even though, yes, it is shouty. There's a lot of uh, big acting from Daniel Day-Lewis, but but Winona gets like the ridiculous acting because she has to pretend that that she's seen spirits. But, you know, it's actually two levels because in the real world, she's pretending that she's pretending that she's seen spirits. You know what I mean? So I think that being aware of that allows me to just give her a pass. I'm like, yes, it's a looks, lot to ask for. Well, yeah, but it's also like it looks silly whenever she's, you know, having her her fantasies or whatever. But it's like it's supposed to be silly because it's it's ridiculous. There's nothing there, you know, and and she knows that. And even up to a point, fucking Paul Caulfield knows that. We find out later in the movie. <laughs> so I, I'm okay with that. I I think that you know when it counts is when she's not pretending anything and she's having her her hearts to hearts with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. And I think she's fine. I buy her as, as just like melting after him when, in that, fir- that first time that you, you see them together. And then uh, the other two times when she like ambush- ambushes him and tries to get him to fill her up. And, and especially on the, when she visits him in, in his cell, that's she looks like scene. a kid, you know? Oh yeah. It's weird. The way she's lit. It's like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think that also uh, probably was intentional to just to remind the audience. Yeah, she's just well, and her dialogue in that scene too is, uh, "I'm just a kid, and this got really out of control, <laughs> and I had no idea how powerful my like just me making shit up could be. I had no idea how much it could ruin people's lives, and now like ten people are dead." <laughs> um, but the second, the middle scene, that is probably my favorite scene in the movie from an acting perspective. Because, you know, Daniel Day just rocks the shit like he always does. But that that's maybe, like, the best Winona Ryder acting I've seen this entire summer. Really? that part. Dude, that is so good. Like, I, we understated it because we were joking about it. Or I understated it. Her having, like, that shit-eating grin on her face, like, sarcastically explaining to him all these claims that she's lied about and gotten other people imprisoned for. And... Like just the vengeance as the word is used multiple times in the movie. And she has all this power and it's the part where like in the end, obviously she realizes it's a bad thing, but in this moment she's like high on it and she's drunk on it and realizes like all this she can do because she's this woman that people believe and that she can like, she's like fucking poison Ivy, like Uma Thurman, like (laughs) obviously much better, but that whole, just that swagger and presence about it. And like, I can make you do any fucking thing I want you to do. It's, you want to talk about layered, like that scene, just watching that. I was like, Holy shit, this is great. It's the only scene in the movie where I think she takes the scene away from Daniel day Lewis. I think we figured out that, uh, that you like your Winona twisted in manipulating because back when we did the dilemma, you were also fawning over that scene where she, uh, she just tells Vince Vaughn how it's going to be. 
You're right. I think I don't need a therapist. Julio's here to explain to me what I like. And uh, yeah. she has she has that uh, that face off with Paul Scofield too, and I think that she does. She holds her own when uh, he's yeah. basically trying to break her, and she doesn't break. She says, uh, "I am not she, lying." Doesn't she say like, "Did I imagine my blood coming out of my body because of what she did to me or something?" You know, it's yeah. That's that's but she's using some of that like old English style wording that like hearing Winona Ryder say it like she's like and what be that look you giveth me or something and I was like ah come on you're Kim from Edward Scissorhands let's move this along but like like I said me thinking she's not up to task versus Daniel Day-Lewis is that's not I wouldn't say that's like an insult that's just kind of you're dealt a bad hand you're not gonna you know live up to it in this one but yeah Jeffrey Jones I think you ruined him for me for life. I mean, deservedly so. Uh, I could have gone the whole summer. You should have waited till the end of the summer when Winona told me what a scumbag he is. But um, and uh, he also he also gets scot free in this movie. Uh, the closest we get to some sort of justice is the fact that Bruce Davidson loses all his money, but yeah. uh, fucking Jeffrey Jones doesn't get any sort of pushback for all the shitty things he did. We talked about Scofield, uh, great performance on his end. Uh, we mentioned it. I don't know if it's true for you. My favorite story arc of the movie is Rob Campbell. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dale. MVP for me. I mean, I, I know we're talking about, you know, the Titans like Scofield and in the L.A. Lewis and whatever. But his character really is the one I enjoy because I just it's nice to see one guy that actually is awakened by this whole story <laughs> and he gets to play both sides. You know, he was he was the asshole judging everybody. And then he is the defenseless guy that can't get anybody else to change their mind. It's, uh... And that thing about when he wants the lawyer there and Schofield's like, no, we don't need it. He's like, motherfucker, I signed 17 death warrants. <laughs> like I, I want to make sure we're doing the right thing. And, and, you know, going back to our Prometheus episode, and I'm sure there's other movies we've talked about. I know there is, and I'm blanking on one right now that talks about like, the uh, lifelong journey that a lot of people have with religion and their faith. And I really enjoy when a movie takes a narrative of not picking a side on it one way or the other, but showing a character that goes through the process of questioning and, you know, wondering what to believe, how to believe. And, you know, if he'll come out on the other end of that story with the same faith. So I, or she or he, excuse me. So I really uh, enjoyed his arc. Um, and Rob Campbell, I thought he was really good in that role as well. And then um, rounding it out here, I mean, she's the only one that got an Oscar nomination for it, that being Joan Allen. Um, she's fine. She's she's good, but her character doesn't really get the big moments that, you know, everybody else does. I'm surprised. I mean, I don't know what the category was looking like for, uh, you know, the best actor category. Oh, I'm on it. Okay. It was the 69th Oscars. Yes. <laughs> uh I think ah, that there you go. she has two big moments, and one of them is mostly, you know, it's her being silent. Right? It's her it's, reacting to Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. Uh, her her final conversation with him when, I don't know, it, it rubs me the wrong way that she, the big thing there is that she ends up apologizing for making him cheat. I was not kidding. Good turns corner. I think that's kind of bullshit. I can't see what they're going for, but... All things considered. But also, that's one of those things that you do have to stop and put yourself in the time of how women were conditioned to view themselves as basically subservient. 
which is obviously sad. I'm glad that's changed, but that that was the main thing I took away from it. It's like, God damn, why why would she think this is her fault? <laughs> but uh, yeah, by that point, the, the movie does drag. The basically the last hour where it's just the extended court where things keep going awry and you know cameos keep happening. That's uh, so by the end of the movie, I was just kind of like, let's go, let's get it over with. <laughs> I would have preferred because to me there wasn't too much in that scene. So my thing would be. It just goes straight into Daniel Day Lewis signing that, and just kind of move it along, and then that's when he like looks at her and he has like his meltdown about it and whatnot. Um, so Julio, hit me, hit me with those nominees. Nineteen ninety-seven. Care to take a guess? Ninety-seven what would, been, would have been Best Picture in nineteen ninety-seven. So we're talking about ninety-six movies, right? Movies from ninety-six. The English Patient. Boom. Not Mission Impossible, but Mission Impossible probably got like sound mix and sound uh, editing. No, but another Tom Cruise movie was nominated for Best Picture. No, Magnolia didn't get a Best Picture nomination, and that was later. Come on, man. Eyes wide shut. Oh, Jerry Maguire. Yep. So it's Jerry Maguire, Secrets and Lies, uh, The English Patient, Shine, which Jeffrey Rush also won Best Actor there for. There you go. And uh, he's fleeing the scene, uh, Fargo. Or fleeing the interview. She doesn't say scene. She says fleeing <laughs> the interview. Frances McDormand, who won Best Actress. Um, okay, so let's go to the Best Actor field to see why DDL got kicked out of there. Uh, Jeffrey Rush, Tom Cruise, Ray Fiennes, Woody Harrelson, and Billy Bob Thornton for Sling Blade. Woody Harrelson for uh, uh, Larry Flint? Yes, which I have still to this day never seen. And then the supporting actress, Joan Allen for The Crucible, Laura Bacall for The Mirror of Two Faces, or The Mirror Has Two Faces, Barbara Hershey, The Portrait of a Lady, uh, Marianne Jean Baptiste for Secrets and Lies, and of course, Miss Juliette Binoche for The English Patient. And fun fact for all you listeners out there, 1997 was the year that the Nutty Professor, starring Eddie Murphy, won an Academy Award for Best Makeup. Oh, not Best Screenplay? Beating out Ghost of Mississippi and Star Trek First Contact. Good God. Okay, last one for the 97 Oscars. The Best Sound category. The English Patient won for Best Sound, but it was uh, a hot, hotly contested award that year with Avita, starring Madonna, Independence Day, The Rock, and Twister. What a murderer's row of <laughs> movies nominated for an Academy Award. Winding down here, Julio, would you care to know who auditioned and who was considered for the role of Abigail Williams? 96. Who was an up-and-coming young star? Claire Danes, because we were just talking about Romeo and Juliet. It was not Claire Danes. Uh, there were several other heartthrobs of the, of the day. Uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt, which would have completely changed this movie. Okay, uh, talk about not being able to buy somebody in a period drama. I mean, can she you would imagine have made... <laughs> her versus Daniel Day-Lewis? Like, <laughs> God, that is, you know, that's fucking um, when Iron Man puts on his, like, super Iron Man suit and just beats the Hulk into the ground <laughs> with, like, that repelling fist. Uh, <laughs> she would have made Jeffrey Jones look good, though. Oh, yeah. Period. He would have just been staring at her cleavage the whole time. Um. Kate Winslet, which I'm confident could have held her own. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
Kirsten Dunst, who actually did a screen test, uh, but they just decided that she looked too young. And, uh, of course, because it's the mid to late 90s, Drew Barrymore. Oh, no. I don't see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I like no. Drew Barrymore. And then, <laughs> uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar uh, auditioned for the part of Mary, which would have been interesting, uh, to say the least. And then I'm just thinking of fucking... See it. Daniel Day Lewis like fucking horse collaring her and dragging her out into the yard. <laughs> no, at that point you just have to cast uh, Frey Prince Jr. as uh, Proctor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, lastly, the one of the more interesting notes I found, which really shouldn't be surprising given the movie and the nature of it all, Kenneth Branagh was originally uh, set to direct it. I mean, I don't know if that really would have changed the presentation at all. I don't know. I don't know either. I I didn't. I gotta say, I was not blown away by the by the direction, by you know the visual style. And I, I was hearing Nicholas Heidner talk, you know, in the commentary, and he had some you know cool stuff to say. And I, I don't know how much of it you noticed, but sometimes the camera would just kind of float, and he was talking about how they'd had this idea that uh, maybe they could have. Not literally, but you know, the devil possessed the camera. So sometimes the camera would move in a crazy way, and I was. It, but then he followed up by saying, "I don't know that that completely worked." And I was like, "Okay, well, at least you're acknowledging it." <laughs> but I mean, it's not poorly made. But I, I think that, and I don't know if this is a movie that needs more like pizzazz in the visual department. You know, maybe you're coming for the performances, and yeah. sometimes maybe the, the best thing to do is to just give uh, Daniel Day Lewis a close up and just let him go. Yeah. yeah, the the thing that should have been accentuated in this movie from a direction standpoint was, and that's the performances. It's not like at any point I was con- uh, uh, distracted by something else that was going on. Yeah, the, the one moment so, that falters, so definitely uh, when uh, Hale quits. We joked about it in Contreras Corner, but it's 100% true. They, did they just lose the, the can of film that had his close-ups in that sequence? Because it's just such a weird shot. It's just they like a wash. shot it. Initial <laughs> test screening. They're like, what happens to Hale? And they're like, shit. <laughs> we forgot to explain that. Uh, yeah, that that is very abrupt. He's been such a big character up till then, too. He's the, the Diane Weist of this movie. Where we were following him. He, had, he, he was a solid character, and then suddenly he's gone. He comes back a little bit at the end, but you know, I wanted I wanted more. It's the curse of Winona. They <laughs> filmmakers just get so enchanted they forget to wrap other things up. So for all those things and more that we discussed, I think I'd be comfortable giving this movie a, I guess a B minus. Yeah, that's more generous than I thought you were gonna go. There's a lot that I've figured out that I do like about it in this recording. I, I enjoyed it. It actually like parts of it got like my heart pumping and stuff. Like anytime I can feel my body reacting to a movie, that's when I know that I'm like really invested in it. So it definitely got me engaged and uh, just some of the things we've discussed and kind of reflected on since I watched it. I, there are things that are not good about it, but the good in it definitely outweighs any potential bad. Did you, were you, were you with uh, DDL at the end when he goes like, because it's my name, leave me my name. Were you like, were you into the movie or did it take you out of the movie that he went so big? Yeah. I mean, I didn't agree with it from like a character perspective or anything like that, but from an acting perspective, yeah. It's not like when Ryan Gosling killed Albert Brooks at the end of Drive and I was like, (laughs) ah, like cheering in my seat. But at the same time, I was just like, 
I could admire the performance. At that point, I could obviously sense what was going to happen. So yeah. I'm glad that he did go out on his shield like that. Yeah, I, I you know, this is the second time I've seen it. I saw it. I, I said it when I when it first came out. So I, I knew what was going to happen. I think that that added to the just oppressive feeling throughout the entire movie because I knew there was no happy ending. And uh, that made it all feel worse. I think, you know, the first time you watch it, maybe you're thinking, like like we said in Guitar's Corner, that at some point, somebody's going to come up and save the day, and that doesn't happen. So knowing that it was all going to end badly, I, I don't know, I really like that moment. I I can see how he takes a big swing, because it could easily turn somebody off. He goes so big. <laughs> but I... I just I it could have I, easily I, turned into like a Donnie Wahlberg type moment where you just have to turn away from the screen. It's so painful. <laughs> yeah, I I was very much into that that conflict. Just the idea of you know what you believe is right versus what you just have to do to to get by. That kind of stuff. It's just very compelling. That's just like completely aside of everything else that's going on in the movie that, that we discussed earlier in real talk. I just just that it boils down in the end to this whole do I do what's morally right or do I do what's right for my family that's just Jesus <laughs> yeah what what a tough position to be put in uh, so yeah no um I'm going with four stars I I thought I was gonna talk myself out of that uh you know I was, I was thinking I was gonna end up with a three and a half after we talked but I think that no it's cemented the four stars excellent so what's next on well, next, hopefully, we get finally some uh, some relief from all this this heavy, heavy stuff. Next is uh, Homefront, where hell yeah, Winona Ryder is, I think, married to either James Franco or Jason Statham, one of the two. Uh, either way, either way, it will be a blast. And both of them are in the movie, so I don't know anything else. I don't know who directs. I don't know what the plot is. I just know it's it, it seemed like an action thriller. So. All right, so Homefront will be on the next installment of the Summer of Winona as we carry on. Uh, now, wrapping up, moving into plugs. As always, we want to give a shout-out and a thank you to the festive years who provide not only our opening and closing tracks, but they've also been kind enough to provide some supplemental music during this, the Summer of Winona. Uh, check out thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our logo is from our friend and fellow podcaster, Hans Rothgieser. He uh, he designed it, he drew it, he scanned it, sent it to me. Uh, he doesn't just do logos, he does comics, he writes novels. He has very, a very popular series of zombie novels. Uh, he has three podcasts. You can find out about all of this uh, on his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can contact him on Twitter at mildemonios. Uh, email him, mildemonios at hotmail.com. Just check out all his work. Uh, if you can speak Spanish, then you can listen to his two podcasts in Spanish, Nación Combi and Marginal. One's about proving current affairs. The other one is about economy. Uh, and then if you only speak English, you can listen to Living in Peru, which is his uh, podcast about immigrants to Peru. And that one is on iVox. The other two are in just your regular podcatchers. And has become tradition at this point in the podcast. We do want to give a special shout out. Thank you. Applause to our Instagram curator, Miss Zoe Perez, for keeping on top of our Instagram posts, helping us out. She knows all the tricks of the trade in terms of uh, getting things out there, algorithm. All that good shit, uh, things that I am not smart enough to figure out. So 
appreciate yeah. that. Now that she's taken over our Instagram, she's moving towards uh, conquering our Facebook page, which uh, might be a, a bigger challenge. But I, if anybody can do it, it's Zoe. I have two quick plugs. Uh, one is, I think I mentioned it on the last episode, and uh, or maybe I just told you off mic, but I guessed it on uh, the Rabbit Ears TV podcast from our friend Ashley, who sent us a couple of clips during this summer. Um, we talked about Game of Thrones, which I just brought up recently. <laughs> uh, spent a solid, like, I don't know, hour, hour and a half talking about it. Uh, because you have a Twitter account and a Facebook, you're probably mildly aware of how season eight of, of Game of Thrones, the final season, was pretty divisive. Luckily, I, I think, Ashley and I kind of see eye to eye on the fact that it's not a disaster. There's a lot of good things that came of it. And so it was, I didn't go into the show to fight with her for an hour and a half about Game of Thrones and how like the ending sucked. Instead, we just spent 90 minutes or whatever celebrating all the good stuff about it and, and you know, commenting some things that could have been improved, some the, theorizing about why, why some things didn't work when they should have, uh, all the stuff. It was, I had a blast. And from what she told me, the episode should be out sometime towards the end of July. So around the time that this episode comes out, it, it might be already be out. So Rabbit Ears TV podcast, if you want to hear me and Ashley talk about Game of Thrones, then you should definitely check it out. And then I finally watched Cinema Paradiso. Have you seen it? Do you know of it? Have you heard anything? Italian movie from, I want to say, late 80s or early 90s, maybe. I It's been on my oh. watch list since forever. It's currently on HBO Max. Uh, I finished watching it. It's like a two-hour movie. And then under extras, I clicked on extras and it said, Director's Cut, three hours. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't watched that one yet. Got but, that Rob Zombie treatment. Yeah. Uh, and now it makes sense. It's uh, it's really good. It is. It's so good that I would tell you to watch it to begin with. But on top of that, uh, one of the main aspects of the movie, it's about a, a movie theater, you know, the, the Cinema Paradiso, and it's old school, like old school projectors, and a lot of it is just seeing the 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 projectionist dealing with film. And I was like, oh, Alex would be on cloud nine oh, just yeah. watching this, like people threading, and uh, then at some point he's training someone else on how to use the projector. And I was like, this is just like film porn, for my co-host <laughs> so I, I i would say we we should maybe watch it uh do it for the show not right away but maybe sometime next year we'll just we'll have a very special episode of the contrarians where alex will just talk about film and what we've lost with the transition to digital uh you know for more so than i already do for 45 minutes just this time you have an excuse there you go but yeah definitely cinema paradiso if you have hbo max it's there if not well you know i'm sure you can find it somewhere else because it's it's kind of a well-known movie from the 80s all right well that concludes the crucible on deck is home front which i am very much looking forward to but for now that's going to conclude this stop on the summer of winona until next time we are the contrarians we are right and you are wrong Lonely, lonely.